Yes. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Comics Fondle podcast. My name is Andrew, and my blog is comicsfondle.com. And I'm Vernon. I'm the proud proprietor of the Comics Gallery, a fine comics purchasing establishment in Wilmette, Illinois, on the North Shore of Chicago. And this is our monthly-ish podcast where we talk about all the latest <laughs> and greatest in comics and comics uh, fandom. So we're just we've got a list of about twenty five books. We're just going to get started and uh, talk about some stuff toward the end. And, and, and a little it. bit of rant at the beginning, like and, we always do. And you know, a little bit of ranting. So always got a rant, man. I'm a, I'm a retailer. I got a fucking rant. I mean, why, why can't I just you know? Uh, uh, uh. All right. Anyway, let's set uh, Vernon let's loose. What's that? Let's rant away. Let's, let, all right, let me let me take my pants off and we'll be ready here. Uh, first rant, okay. Last month's sales figures for DC. The Incredible Rebirth numbers lasted exactly three months before Marvel regained the lead last month with a five-point percentage lead. Uh, this month, uh, Jonathan Jackson Miller uh, posted uh, November's. And believe it or not, DC goes even further in the hole. They went down 12 points to Marvel. And I'm like, how do you fucking lose momentum from a, uh, a, a chain-wide relaunch in three months? You lose, you're down by five points, and then the next month you put down by 10, 12 points. I'm like, the people at DC got to be shitting in their pants right now because this is a re, a relaunch should last more than three months, but I, somehow... Okay, we know the material is really not superior. It's decent. It's well-structured. It's professional. Those are the nice things to say about it. Uh, what, you, what, you, what I've taken away from it is this twice-monthly schedule has given them what we call downward attrition at twice the pace. And that's what hurt them. Where, as they might have stretched it out a month or two, had their books been monthly, it accelerated the uh, pace of attrition significantly to where they lost the first point. Now there's also the issue uh, dollar per issue. DC charges two ninety nine, and Marvel's at three ninety nine. This is another point of contention. Now what I don't understand in some degrees is why people continue to buy books from Marvel at three ninety nine and a lot of them are four ninety nine. I'm still trying to figure that out, but then. That's an argument I probably should have given up long ago because I still can't explain Marvel's popularity because their books are all but readable to me these days. But the fact that after all the time, all the money, all the resources DC went to to reboot their entire line, and you know what? They've been pretty damn good about keeping a schedule. I think they got like something like, what, 18, 20-plus books that are published twice a month now, and – as a professional unit, you got to give them kudos for keeping that up. I mean, there's no lateness. They've been doing pretty good. Okay, Jim Lee slipped again last time. But the funny thing is, November of this year, which had five Wednesdays in it, so you have theoretically five ship weeks, came in lower than November of last year that had four ship weeks. So they had a whole extra week, and they produced less releases and made less money. And I was like, wait a minute, something's wrong with this picture. Is anybody, like, looking at the dominoes or anything? So uh, I think I've showed you some posts from retailers that weren't particularly happy about the situation they're going through right now. I'm not going to go in a doom and gloom scenario, but uh, 
I worry in the first quarter of next year uh, if, if because the big two aren't producing. That's a problem when you have such a monopolistic thing is when the big two fail, then a lot of shops just can't take it. You know what I mean? So we're going to see. The first quarter of uh, 2017 is going to be interesting for comic shops. And uh, I will wish them well because I, you know, I mean, I don't particularly care for a lot of Marvel or DC's product, but I need to sell it. Okay. <laughs> I'm not going to, I'm not going to, I'm not going to be anything less than honest here. But uh, anyway, that, then we, then we can go on to some optimistic news. What was that? Fanographics is what? Starting their own superhero line of yeah. comics. My gosh. Fanographics what? is finally doing comics or finally doing superhero comics. Well, and not only that, but they're going back to the uh, pamphlets. Okay. They haven't put out many pamphlets in the last few years. It's always been collections or trades or whatever. And for whatever reason, they decided that they might be successful. This maybe the big two suck at superhero comics, but they had some subversive talents working on these right. things. So they have what uh, Ethan Van Skyver's brother, whose name escapes me. He's obviously another Van Skyver. I don't think they're um, related. You don't think they're related? Noah Van Skyver isn't that the guy from Denver that did the indie book a few years ago? Uh, he's been doing a lot of indie shit. And I don't he's think not, he's related to Ethan. Okay. Well, I always assume they were because how many fucking businesses that are so small as ours have two guys named Van Skyver? Let me look. I'm looking, yeah, everybody. Look at, look Holy that, yeah. shit. It is. They are brothers. They are brothers. Yes, yes. I have a customer of mine that like special orders everything that Ethan Van Skyver does through previews catalog and everything. And the guy does some really depressing indie stuff. It's really strange. He's... Probably, I mean, Noah does depressing indie stuff. Noah, Noah, right, right. Ethan's the Republican that plays piano. Um, Noah <laughs> does really oddball, uh, oddball comics on weird subject matters that has its own kind of cult following, I guess, among indie people, you know? Yeah. And uh, he's going to be involved with it. And who's the guy that uh, Johnny Ryan's going to be involved yeah. in it? And then they got some, they got some normal guys like, but. Is it uh, Al Migram? I go, God, what's Al Migram doing these days? Well, since he got canned as art director for Marvel about 10 years ago, he probably hasn't done much. So he figures, what the hell, I'll throw my lot in with Fanagraphics because I know how to do superhero comics. He probably knows how to make them look like superhero comics. I mean, his whole art style would be perfect for such a thing. But I'm yeah, kind of curious, uh... Uh, who's the main guy behind this? He's he's done some stuff for uh, Fanagraphics too. And they're going to announce, what, one title a month or something like that right now? I think I, I was looking at that schedule. They've got a, re- a release for, was it around March, maybe? They're st- and they're going to go through next year. Every month they're going to put out a superhero comic. 36 pages, four ninety nine. Probably a better deal than Marvel's because they won't have any ads. Or maybe a couple. I think yeah. it's exciting. Fanographics is doing pamphlets again. Shit. And then, you know, with the Loving Rockets coming out every once in a while, too, I'll be in hog heaven for a while. But anyway, those are those are our rants for the day, which aren't too bad. We were pretty mild, but uh, we'll see, you know. I, you know, I listened to another comics podcast by a husband and wife team recently. Remarkably sanguine. I mean, these people were real, like, mellow couple, you know. It's like, I was like, man, you know, you and I don't have, like, the most popular podcast in the world, but we were miles ahead of these people. It was just amazing, you know? <laughs> I mean, I don't know. We, we could probably shoot heroin and be better than those guys. Anyway. 
But uh, anyway, let's see here. You're the one with the title. Should we start reviewing some comics? All right, let's start reviewing some comics. And the guy who's doing that all-time comics for uh, Fantagraphics, his name's Josh Bayer. Josh Bayer. Yeah. Did they give any titles? Hint? Give any titles? Hint? Did he work done? I don't. I can't remember because I've been out of indie comics for a while. You know, that's things. When you're when you're a retailer, you're less and less into indie comics because they don't sell. But when you're a collector, you're more and more in indie comics because they're weird and you like to read them, you know. Josh All right. Bale. I'll have to look him up and find out some stuff on him. Here we go. All right. Black Hammer got- 5. Go. Is that me? Okay, Black Hammer 5. Um, continuing the unusual Justice League book that's over at Dark Horse, uh, Jeff Lemire is becoming like my favorite superhero author just because he's doing something interesting with books, you know, and he's teamed up with Dean Armstrong, who is a, a well-known Vertigo guy, and produced this book. We talked about it on our last podcast, and I'm five issues in. I'm still fully, like, vested in these weird characters and the situation they have about being stranded in another dimension on a farm in Kansas or somewhere, and they have to perform as a normal family unit, even though they've been drastically transformed by this. And it's just some wicked stuff. I mean, Jeff Lemire's got some really fun concepts, and he's rolling with the ball. And Dean Armstrong's art is typically weird, ugly, and gorgeous all at the same time. He, he's really a good one. they got Dave Stewart on colors, too. And five issues in, I think this is going to be the trade. And uh, it's pretty strong. It's stronger than anything that DC's put out through their Rebirth label. So I'm very excited about Black Hammer, and I look forward to every issue. Let's put it that way. She's in. No let up yet. I'm waiting for the trade, so I'll just say. You should wait for the trade, right. yes. So, Ether. I'll talk about Ether, written by Matt Kint, who uh, Vernon likes more than I do. After me liking him more than Vernon, or me liking him more than Vernon did many yeah, you, years you ago. I went through this strange thing about Lemire and Kent, because you discovered Kent, and you thought he was okay, and then I didn't like him, and then I started liking him more, and then it's weird. Jeff Lemire and Matt Kent have this weird peripheral love-hate relationship between us. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, There's. it's just weird. We've never been a, had a consensus on them at the same time. Yeah, it's very strange. So maybe it'll be Black Hammer for Lemire. But anyway, so Ether is another Dark Horse book. Matt Kent's writing it. David Rubin's doing the art. Rubin is the guy who did the fiction, Fall of the House of West, uh, Rise of Aurora West. So he's a, you know, he's a really good artist. He's very experienced, and his his mainstream style is just magnificent. It really is. He can do anything. Yeah. But basically, the comic is Adam Strange. I mean, it, it's an Adam Strange book. I didn't even think about that. Yeah, the parallels are very similar. You yeah. know, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's fine, but it's it's entertaining and there's good art. I mean, what else? Uh, and it's probably, yeah. what two ninety nine. So, uh, no, a lot of the Dark Horse stuff has went to three fifty or three ninety nine. Well, three fifty. David Rubin's good. He's worth four bucks. And, and who's the colorist on this thing? This guy was good, too. Uh, shit. Art and lettering. Okay. Cover Does he art. do his own? Rubin might do his own coloring. It says art and lettering by David Rubin, so I'm assuming he's doing his own coloring on this yeah, book, man. too. 
And it's it's a smash. David Rubin is like a he's like a great journeyman artist that just jumps from unusual project to unusual project, and he just hits it out of the ballpark because he gets but his style turns a little more animated cartoon this time in terms of movement and character design, and it just works out really sweet. I mean, the book is packed too. What's his name? Kent doesn't slow down the dialogue or anything. You get you get fifteen or twenty minutes out of this thing. Yeah. I mean, you're right, though. It's it's nothing we haven't seen already, but it, you know, and and that's a regular thing. There's a lot of books that there's nothing new we haven't seen, but they're just so well done, right? You know, and that's and the we, thing. They're go right ahead. Sorry. We, well, we've gone. We kind of saw this with the big two ten years ago, starting with Ultimate Spider-Man. They really delivered an all-star Superman. They really delivered. They delivered on these concepts of regurgitated material, Ed Brubaker's Captain America, for instance. And they've really fallen off with that. They haven't had a good retro series. I mean, Dan Slott writes Spider-Man, and we don't care. Like, we say that about yeah, once a, every underneath. two years. That's not what any of us said in 2004. In 2004, no, we, we were chopping off our fingers to send them to Marvel, saying, give us a Dan Slott Spider-Man book. That's right. We were kissed the man's feet. And so these sort of regurgitate, I mean, as long as the, and we argued about, was it a Kent or Lemire book? The one where the kid goes to the moon and it's just that Spielberg movie, the robot kid. Who wrote that? Oh man, that, that's probably, it's probably Lemire, but I'm not sure. Right. And I mean, these guys are just playing with familiar concepts in pop culture and it's fine. I mean, it's gotten to a point where it's fine, which is which is cool when you've got a good artist, and not as cool when you don't care about the artist, you know. So yeah, right, right. I imagine it's somewhat like a horror comic in the '50s or something, you know. Like maybe there's something good. Well, maybe not too, but you know. <laughs> you know I'm trying to be upbeat. All right, let's move on. Well, you weren't you weren't looking for Academy Award winning shit. You just wanted to read a comic and be entertained for fifteen. Hey, there you go. And, to, and you today, go. I think that about as high a bar as we can set, except for very few examples. Right, which we'll get to later. But yeah, next shit. up is comic book history of comics. Yeah, this is one I went into thinking I was going to hate. Because when I looked at the previews uh, announcements for the book, they've got a fellow, let me see what his name is here, Ryan Dunlavy. Now, this guy did tons of work, I think, for Wizard Magazine and illustrates a lot of their Collect Comics volumes. And his cartooning, you know, let's just say that he's adequate, okay? We're not going to say he's superlative. He, he really doesn't show any influences. And... His work is just not that interesting to me as someone who adores great cartooning, okay? So I went into this book thinking, okay, visually it's going to suck, and then I'm going to have a hard time getting through the details. But luckily, him and his uh, cohort, a writer named Fred Van Lente, we've heard of him before, uh, they uh, managed to put together 32 pages of comic book history that I found interesting to read, easy to digest, and a very quick read for like – I don't know, what is it, 25 pieces of uh, information leading up to 1938, mind you. We're talking okay. about the beginnings up to 1938 before superheroes get started. And for three ninety nine, I thought, man, you really get a chock-full bunch of information on comic books and the stories behind printed syndicated strips and how they get started. 
and the political and wealthy issues of the owners. And it's just fascinating stuff. It even deals with like uh, the Hebrew culture and owning newspapers and syndicates. And, and it goes into Jack Kirby being a poor kid on the streets of New York City. And it's just, it's good stuff. And it's very easy to digest. And uh, I went into it thinking it was going to suck. And it really didn't. So I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I think it's like five or six issues. But it focuses particularly among um, just American comics, which okay. is a nice way to go, you know. So I can recommend that one. That was from IDW and at three ninety nine. Um, it's quite a good read if you're interested in uh, that sort of thing anyway. Now, who's IDW? How, for some reason I knew it was IDW, but anyway. Okay. Yeah. I mean it just seems like the kind of thing that IDW does. Like it's that's their brand of weird. Yeah, yeah, they pick up those weird, like, what it's like it? comic cultural things. Like, they do this big yeah. and everything, you know. They're just kind of, oh, yeah, we could we could do this, you know. It doesn't seem out of – or art portfolio, sure, we'll do one of those. What the fuck, you know. Right, sure. Okay, so next uh, I'm going to talk about Kaiju Max Season 2, Number 6, which is the yeah. last episode of the season, which I wasn't really thinking about. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny how we talk about them in TV seasons. Of course, this one, this book here, this one this does book. it, which is kind of cool that he thinks about it in those terms and it like structures it. But it's really just a mini series. Um, well, to be fair, Xander Canyon does everything, right? Yes, yes. But I think that um, I think he's just got one guy credited here. For color assists, and that's it. Mm-hmm. That's that's a lot of work. Yeah, so he does a lot. Um, but yeah, so he does six issues. It's a limited series, and then you have another one. It's cool. Um, but this issue brings about the end of some things and some more developments. And the first season of Kaiju Max was very different than this season, just in terms of. It was set on Kaiju Max, and a, a fair amount of it was sort of exploring that uh, the prison island and just how things worked. Whereas now, you know, Cannon's just explaining the world, and he's looking at right, little pieces with, of it. Yeah, with the expi- the uh, what do you call it? Escape of Electagor, trying to look for his two children. Yes, it's become his experience of running into different situations while he's looking for his kids. And there's also this new cop, the robot cop lady, who's having her first experiences too. And so it's just, it's just very Kaiju Max is. I mean, when we when we first started reading it, it was just a bit of a shock because you had this mix of. Not even Godzilla 60s kaiju, but some really crappy Gamera kaiju um, references and things like that. And you threw it together with, like, this serious prison story. And so this this uh, season of it is like a very serious – it's like The Wire with a Saturday afternoon dubbed kaiju movie. It's really it, 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 heavy. It, 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 yeah, yeah. He he talks about real human situations in society, but he does it in the guise of giant Japanese robots and Godzilla and, monsters. Yeah, so I mean, it's it's. I mean, the first season got super heavy. This season's super heavy. I mean, the whole thing is just. 
I, I wonder sometimes if, if Xander Gagnon isn't going to break under the stress of all of these themes that he's developing because he seems to be like really close to his characters, you know? Yes. And it's almost like you could see him having a nervous breakdown somewhere down the line if, if, if everything goes to shit. I, I hope Xander Gagnon's life is really good because that would reflect <laughs> on Yeah, because he's not going to sell this to Disney. There's no, there's no Pixar Kaiju Max adaptation. You were talking about that in our last episode about like, well, who would develop this? Is only the right company for this, you know? And and I'm like, well, I don't know who could make this sell better because a lot of companies would turn this down just because it's so odd, you know? But it, I don't know. That's true, and I I feel like that's sort of what we're seeing is that with the resurgence of image, with I mean, Cassander can Canyon Cannon. He did top ten. He did the S-Max spinoff. You know, he's done mainstream, as big a mainstream as you can get. And that's not his style on Kaiju Max. Although and it looks deceptively mainstream when you read it with the it big does. Cartoon, yeah. You know, and it, I mean, it's so, it's so, like, brilliantly executed it looks like a toy ad for cute little like kaiju toys kaiju like it's, toys. Yeah, yeah it's it, just, it's like a saturday morning cartoon it's got some really heavy ass yeah so i i just feel like i i still feel like oni uh, this should you just said it they should at least try to make a saturday morning cartoon Oh my god! But but it would have to be on Adult Swim Whatever. because it's just yes. too dark. Right? It is, right. but you know they should try it. They should at they least should, th- we should at least be hearing rumors about that. Like, yeah, this would be a really developmental property too. This this could be done. I mean, quite easily if you're going to watch all that depressing shit on cable television. I mean, I would rather watch Kaiju Max than Game of Thrones. I mean, Kaiju right. Max more possibilities than Game of Thrones does. And you could do so much more on a limited budget, too, because you're not working with humans, but animated cartoons. Right. Now. What was it? Uh, was Fox developing that studio where they were going to try to, like, have a system where they were developing four shows simultaneously in this warehouse building or something? I'm like, Kaiju Max would be a perfect fit for something like that. Right. You know I mean? But uh, you know what? Kaiju Max is recommended with reservations. If you can handle societal problems, the breakdown of the family unit, Persecution of minorities, uh, unrequited forbidden love, themes like that. Yeah, you know it's, I mean? it's a heavy, it's a heavy book. It's a heavy read. Don't don't be fooled by the cartoon monsters. That's yeah. all I can say. All right, Lake of Fire, go. Lake of Fire, another image title. My God. Anyway, by two unknowns, uh, Nathan Fairburn and Matt Smith, who are running five issues of a Roger Corman film concept. What if English Crusaders? had an alien spaceship land in their backyard and had to deal with it. And it seems simple and dumb, and these two guys make it work. Uh, you got just enough invested with the humans and the English crusaders as they try to basically survive an alien attack on a village. Uh, luckily, the, the crusaders were in the neighborhood, like, subjugating non-Christians. Otherwise, they would have been a total write-off. Uh, but... It's, it's just really done with a lot of verve and zest, and uh, I have to hand it to these two guys. The idea is artfully executed. 
and it works and it progresses and you feel for the characters and my god I can't believe there's only one more issue left of this I really can't because they've been they've been carrying this along at a galloping speed all the way through this thing you know because it's really a one-sided battle obviously I mean if you look at if you look at a Ridley Scott movie you know and you see the kind of weapons they have against aliens and then you go back like I don't know how many hundred years to the English Crusaders where they've got what horses and swords and Maybe once in a while, one of them get lucky and have a crossbow, but they got to face these alien insect-like creatures, and it's it's just pretty creepy as shit. And uh, it works, it works. So I'm looking, I'm, I'm hoping the payoff is there. We've got one more issue of Lake of Fire, and I'm hoping it works. But I'm on board. All right. So Hadrian's Wall number three. Uh, second issue didn't impress me anywhere near as much as the first. Third issue more impressive again. Um, yes. You know, I mean, that's these guys are actually pretty good at this uh, this format. That was kind of one of the problems with Cowl was that it, it was unclear if it had been a limited series. I feel like they would have been able to do one Cowl, do another Cowl, maybe do a third Cowl instead of just getting two story arcs done and then sort of having to cancel. Um, yeah. Adrian's Wall. It's got a nice. Um, the investigation builds in the third issue. There's a surprise-ish ending. You know, I mean, it, it's a classic it's like movie who done it in yeah. outer space among a uh, representative for a company who set to this one satellite to solve, not necessarily solve a mystery, but to explain it and be the protocol guys. But you know, the funny thing is, right off the bat, he's got issues with one of the the people on the spaceship because it's his ex-wife. Right. So, you know, he was sent there for a reason. And these guys seem to be, there was at Higgins and Siegel. They seem to be the masters of slow burn. And you're right. If they condense themselves to five or six issues, I think it works much better. And I'm hoping the payoff, again, here's that word payoff again. But again, here we come back to the argument about mainstream comics failing and these indie guys, well, not really bringing anything new to the table, but artfully executing a comic from A to B that is uh, professionally done and fully convincing. You know right. what I mean? That and I mean, that's, that's kind of a cynical way, but I mean, we've been burned for so long that the thing about Marvel and DC at this point is they can't do this. They can't. They, they don't, can't. I just don't they understand don't do limited series for the most part anymore. So those are always tie-ins to whatever crossover. I mean... Where marketing has taken over, where aesthetics... Yes. and so it's just, yeah, I mean, you're not, you're not doing a crossover to see how the character does in sales, so you can see if you're going to do another series and then build it up to an ongoing. You're doing it to freaking um, tie in to sell more Civil War three tie ins and shit. I mean, it's right. It, it, and then you know, every year we get a new She Hulk comic because you never they never give it enough. Um, they never really. Supported enough any time out the gate. They support the concept every time, and then they don't support it once it's out the gate. So, and they support it with guest stars. You know, remember yeah. She Hulk by Soleil had freaking Captain America and maybe Wolverine. Right, um, he, he knew what he had to do to keep the thing running. Right, and, and that was just, it. I just don't think we're at that point anymore where having Batman guest star or having Superman guest star or having Wolverine guest star. 
is going to get the same. You can't integrate these things well enough anymore. And I mean, Miss Marvel did a pretty great job of it with the Wolverine, but still, there's a certain silly factor to it. So it's just. Um, well, it's, and that's, and, I'm sorry. Well, no, I mean, it's frustrating because we've seen the rise of trade paperbacks and just how infuriating must it be to read a trade paperback. I I just think off the top of my head of uh, Supergirl at the end of the Eagle and uh, Gates oh, run. Yeah. yeah, yeah, So you're reading a Supergirl trade and all it is is crossovers to new Krypton. Like, what the hell was the point of that? It it it, it satisfied a, a, a business marketing plan for a book that will sell so many units in so much time at so much money, but it doesn't satisfy on a, a purely emotional level to want to read a good story that is convincing right. and has a decent ending. And that's what books like Hadrian's Wall succeed, where their mainstream counterparts don't even go near this nope, type of level. Don't even attempt it. Yeah. I mean, there's no copyrightable characters in Hadrian's Wall. <laughs> yeah. huh. But, you know, a nice read. I mean, yeah. it, it's not for everybody. It's a slow burn. It's a motor mystery. But you know what? If you're into that kind of stuff, it's complicated enough to, to, to keep you moving on it. And, right. and so far, so good. Yeah. I mean, we'll be eternal optimists. Yes. Okay. Uh, Electric Sublime 3. Here's another one of them already IDW books, okay? Uh, I think, I don't know, I haven't done any research, I'm not paid for this, so I don't do a lot of research, but this seems like a European book, and uh, it's being translated in English, I'm probably wrong, but we've got uh, somebody named W. Maxwell Prince writing, and Martin Morazzo drawing it, and I think the last time I talked about the first issue about this uh, character named Art Brute that gets involved with the English government when they have problems with their art masterpieces immolating or changing behavior or starting like serial killing murders or something like that. It's very surreal. And it had, the artist, uh, Mr. Morazzo, has this really cool Mobius vibe going on. And he gets to draw surreal scenes where Art Brute steps into paintings and meets the characters like Mona Lisa or the guy from Scream. And uh, they have to solve this problem. I think, I think this thing only runs four or five issues. To where they don't want the, they want the world to survive, and it has to survive because somebody's attacking it through its art, and it's just such a weird little concept that I think only Europeans would think in the terms like this. Because well, you and I don't think of ter- paintings like the Screamer or Mona Lisa because we're Americans, we don't right. have these paintings over here. But um, I found it uh, it's 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 a rather simpler book. It's not on the league of uh, Hadrian's Wall or some of the other stuff we've discussed. But I think it's a real good rollicking adventure. With a fun character, Art Brood is like this simpleton. Like he could almost be like, I don't want to use the word retarded, but simple is good, you know. And he's got to help the the government solve these crimes before the world ends. And it's just kind of a fun, surrealist romp uh, with all of these art references, which are kind of cool for me since I went to art school and I know them all. But they're general enough that anybody can get them, I think. Right. And, uh, this is a fun comic, okay? This is one that I enjoy reading. When it comes out, I'm like, yay, I can read the next issue and see where they go. So, again, another book that gets me excited where I just want to find out what happens. You know, they don't all have to live happily ever after, but it's just an interesting book. Like, the latest one has a Warhol theme to the cover. You can see that there. Uh-huh. 
that's that's the uh, that's the that's the villain I think in this one. So the villain gets a Warhol treatment on the cover of the latest one. But that's that's a fun one. Hopefully IDW can keep up the good work on that. And now, uh, speaking of limited series and miniseries, which we won't talk about again. We won't talk about the format again, but we will talk about Resident Alien uh, Man with No Name. Is that the series? Uh, I think so. Yeah, Man with No no Name. Right, exactly. Number three, um, another good issue. It's almost over. Uh, Is is there any bad issues of Resident Alien? There's not. This has got to be what? This is the fourth series? I believe so, yes. So we're basically on issue... Four, 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 twelve, and three for fifteen. Yes. So basically, we're on issue fifteen of the Resident Alien series, and we're just now, and after over three years, just now getting around to like the the Harry finding out that his assistant, who he's sort of got a crush on, knows that he's an alien and knows what he looks like, and. We've been waiting for this since I don't know the third issue of the yeah, first yeah, series. Right, right. So for those of you at home, he's an alien that crashed his spaceship on Earth and can mentally disguise himself as a human. So he takes residence in a small town in the middle of nowhere as the town doctor. Right. It's like Northern Exposure. This is another one that's perfect for TV, but just it'd be perfect. So yeah. it's like watching a TV show. It you know? is. But, his his assistant, who's Indian, and her dad. Her dad. It said right off the bat. Well, he always looked like an alien to me. You know, I like he's a woman <laughs> or something. And then the girl says, "I had these weird vibes, but now I now I know him. I can see him because I can pierce his wall because I'm familiar with him and I can see him. You know. And the funny thing is, he freaks out because they don't have any reaction to this. Right. You know? An Earth, an Earth person seeing an alien for the first time is like, "Oh my God, it's a fucking alien!" But no, they're like. Well, he's an alien, but he's also our town doctor. You know what I mean? It's just very absurd situation, but it works. It and uh, And it's a great uh, – again, it's like watching a TV show because the Steve Parkhouse, the uh, artist, and who's writing this? Ben Hogan, is it? Peter Hogan. Peter Hogan. Great mainstream people who know how to speak the comics language flawlessly, and they just – suck you in and let you go on this great adventure with this alien who's trying to preserve his identity. And, you know, the whole time he's being hunted by the FBI or the CIA or whatever it is, and they're getting closer and closer and closer. And over the four series that we've been reading so far, this has been like a back plot. You know what I mean? Like, and, and they're as close as they've ever been to finding out where he is. And at the same time, his personal cohorts in the small town are starting to realize that he's more than what he seems to be. And it's just like, I don't know, it's just so much fun. It's like watching, like, fucking Supergirl or something, you know? I don't right. know. It's just kind of fun, you know? Can't beat Reason an Alien. I don't know. The Parkhouse art is good, too, you know? Yeah. Okay. So even though Vernon shanghaied my Resident Alien, he's going to talk oh, about... Yeah. No, you got it. Resident sorry. Alien 3. Go! Go. What? Not Resident Alien 3. No, Lady we- Killer 3. Lady Killer 3. You know, another Dark Horse book. I'll make it quick so Andrew can talk again. Um, I mentioned this last time. We're up to issue three of the second series of Lady Killer. Uh, Joelle Jones, the the creator behind this book, she's an artist first and a writer second, and it shows 
but she knows that the plot is so simple that she has to make up enough visuals to keep it arresting about a professional hit woman in the, I'm going to guess, mid to late 60s, uh, who does things like has Avon parties or Tupperware parties to commit her mass acts of mayhem. And three goes along pretty good. Uh, it has a nice feature where she picks up a guy who cleans up after her uh, professionally at her murders and stuff like that. The only problem is when he shows up at a family function as her missing uncle, uh, the mother-in-law recognizes the guy from fucking one of the prison camps during the Holocaust. And uh, <laughs> it, it, it just it's like it's like you're watching one of those old sitcoms like Bewitched or I Dream of Jeannie that has a professional hit woman as the protagonist, you know, because everything is all bright and bubbly and pastel tones and poppy 60s. And Joelle Jones does such great attention to detail, including the patterning on everybody's dresses and the style of clothes they wear, to the model of cars and the style of houses that were being built in the 60s. So it's a nice package. Again, it's it's a great comic book that mainstream companies don't do anymore. You know what I mean? You, you can say this book doesn't have a, a ton of content, but you can't say that it doesn't have a ton of love and talent behind right. it. So Lady Killer, while it has its... Um, conceptual flaws, or I should say lack of heft, um, her cartooning skills and design sense make up for it. And it's a, a fun read, much in the way much in the way that uh, Art Brood and Electric Sublime carry you along as well. Just a professionally done product that you like to read. So there. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, Jessica Jones, too. Um <sighs> It's, I'm still reading it. Um, yeah, yeah. Like, it's not really good. I mean, the art's it's, good. You know. It's Bendis. It's you Bendis. know, in a glacial place. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm there. There's nothing else to say about it. Like, I wish the show were back. That's my review of Jessica Jones, the comic. You know, after reading two, I felt the same way. I was like, you know, it's a decently composed comic, but, you know, Bendis is so light on plot that I'd rather watch an episode of Jessica Jones uh-huh. than read the comic because there's so much more in an episode of Jessica Jones. And for God's sakes, I wish someone would fucking take Bendis down a hack and say, would you please give us more than eight minutes to read a comic's worth of material? It's just it's so fast. This one is just absurd. Yeah, I, he doesn't have enough. He has moments, but he doesn't have a story. You know what I mean? And he's he's good at dialogue. Okay, the little scene between Jessica and I guess it's her. Who is this old lady that her that mom? Has, it's gonna be her mom. How could it be her mom? I don't know, man. Her what? mom was killed in an auto accident in Alias, and it was even revisited in Jessica Jones' TV series because what's her name adopts her. So on both realities, there is no mom. Is okay, it like I don't know. the children's father's mom? But that's Luke Cage because she's a mixed-race baby. Right. It's an old white lady. Oh, who knows? We don't care. That's the problem with this freaking You know, adult. you're right. I didn't even notice that. I go, wait a minute. Mom's supposed to be dead. When you said it's mom, I'm, I'm like, wait a minute. I just, just now. You know, it's kind of funny how Bendis will, like, just, like, Chew on your weenie while he's telling you a story so you don't notice all the details don't make any fucking sense, right? And I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm on board, but, but who's the mom? Right, like... Because <laughs> he, even he wrote the story where they all died in an auto accident except for her, right? 
Maybe my okay. So who could it be? I uh, we don't care. We don't care. We don't <laughs> care. There you go. The logic doesn't even make any sense. Okay, it, it's a good Marvel comic, I guess, for what it's worth. Yeah, I mean the you art. Know? The art's good. I mean, it's yeah. So I'm glad to see Gato's working again. Yes, let's put it that. Let's yes. After the the misfire of Spider Woman. Okay. Yeah, it, yeah, that was a misfire, but at least Gatos is doing something that's kind of interesting. Right. Uh, after death, AD after death. Did you get into this one? Here we are with Lemire again. Okay. This was a weird anomaly. This was announced as a three-issue oversized series. It's magazine format. It's square bound. It has how many fucking pages? Uh, do they put numbers on pages anymore? That's going to be a toughie. No, they don't. I'm going to guess 30 plus. Um Scott Snyder is on board as a writer. And I'm like, well, I really hate Scott Snyder, and I really hate Jeff Lemire's art. Okay, I like his writing, but Jeff Lemire draws like a left-footed orangutan. And it is visually very ugly art, which I think draws people to it just because it's so fucking ugly. And in its own way, it becomes convincing, you know. But I think this is a Jeff Lemire book that Scott Snyder, like, helped him fill out. Okay. Okay. Uh, because the concept about a man that has some issues with his family and ultimately loses everything is somehow connected to man's immortality now. Okay. And man lives forever. And it talks about the society we call AD after death, when death no longer exists. So I'm like, oh, this is too heavy of a concept for Scott Snyder. It must be Lemire's. It sounds yeah. like a Lemire story. Then Scott Snyder. But you know what? It works. Again, it's a fun book. It's three issues. Um, what, five ninety nine a hit, which is a little high, but the format and the pages and the quality do it. And it takes you God, I think this would be twenty minutes plus to read, maybe half an hour. What a yeah. Deal. yeah. I'm saying it's it's much better than your average Spider Woman comic. And uh, if, if if they get it all done in three issues, I'm on board. It's an interesting experiment, and one can't say by the first issue whether something's going to be a success or not. Right. I'm drawn to the second, so that's a good sign. You know? Who put that out? Image? In image, yeah. They all own this shit nowadays. Oh. Image, while they've taken a fall in circulation, are still pulling 10% of monthly orders, so they're still chugging along. They yeah. just need to find they need to find someone maybe a little tighter than Eric Stevenson to write the ship and get it going faster in the same direction. You right. Know? Okay. Cinema Purgatorio, number seven. That's mine. Um, That's going to be yours. Purgatorio. Did you read it? You know, I don't get a chance nowadays. When, when these, these oddball titles, I, I sell them out before the weekend. It's sad, but that's what us for- retailers are forced to do nowadays if we want to try to keep our doors open is all the oddball shit's got to get sold out by the weekend. So, um, I won't spoil anything. I don't even know if I remember anything to spoil, but... Oops. It's just, it's, it's kind of just there, like... Well, I mean, earlier issues, uh, it's an anthology with, like, science fiction fantasy stories, uh, but it's primarily known as a vehicle for Alan Moore and Garth Ennis' shorts. Right, I mean... Alan Moore's is the big stuff, because it's a very melancholy look at life, on the human condition as seen through what? Cinema. Hollywood stories, yeah. cinema stories. Turgid. Turgid. Turgid yeah. right. So, I mean, it's, you know, they do the Western, this one, it's lame. 
Um, after really, yeah, Alan Moore does lame. Wow. Well, I mean, it's just there's nothing. It's fine. There's nothing amazing. They did the King Kong one that was amazing. They did the Warner Brothers one that was amazing, and now they're doing this one. It's just like, yeah, we know. We got Are it. Are we doing this for a long series, or do you have a limited amount of these issues? Because well, I always thought Cinema Purgatorio, like in some weird twisted way, I thought all of the series would end at the same time, and then that would be the end of Cinema Purgatorio. I mean, I think, I think Kevin O'Neill has said that, I mean, yes, they're finishing. They're, it, it is finite, but, you know, even everything else, you know, Code Prue's okay. I mean, Code Prue sometimes is okay. Sometimes it's not. You know, Ennis does not have a handle on it. Yeah, the, the other, short stories, like you said, are not his forte. No. Modded, I think, I has a new artist who's better and, you know, it's better. apocalyptic Pokemon strip. Uh, Perfect Union is kind of just <laughs> right, and then the Vast was a reprint from last issue. Or what so, the fuck was that? They and then they, they didn't. Run. Yeah, and uh, they're just like, "Hey, we're not going to bother reprinting it either." And it's just like, I, I, "Yeah, they don't give a shit." We're not like, making money on this fucking oh, thing. Oh my! This was a terrible idea. Printed episode from a previous episode. I go. Are you guys all down there in Rantoul smoking a lot of weed or what? I don't get it. You know. And I mean, that's that kind of pissed me off because that's the one with like the best art of the back three. Okay, yeah, and that's the thing; it's a limited series, and you think, okay, well, maybe they can get some trades out of this. And I think the Alan Moore material would definitely yes. make a trade, you know. And you know, they could probably sell the Cold Proof shit as well, you know. The rest of the stuff, yeah, it's not strong enough to hold on its own. I don't think, you know. Nah. And yeah, it's okay, but it seems to be losing its energy as time goes on. Hopefully, they can. Finish it up with some style. Let's yeah. put it that way. Okay, so um, for some reason, you're going to do Knights Dominion three. Why am I going to do it? You can do it. You read well, it, didn't you? I read it. Okay, so I'll do Knights Dominion three. I'll do two in a row, three in a row, just because yeah. Vernon's going to have to do three in a row later. And I'll keep uh, barking too. Okay, so Knights Dominion three is uh, is this the one I liked? Well, yeah, yeah. I think according to your reviews, it was, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. they get away from that basic plot. Yeah, and they, they get away, yeah. Up. I mean, he sort of spent the first two issues setting something up, and this one's something different. And it, it moves on from it, sort of it resolves the cliffhanger, and it moves on. And so it's just a nicer sense of a book. I, I guess that was always my issue with it is I just didn't like the feel of it. You know, it was very forced how he was putting together this team and then he was trying to... His execution was a little on the herky-jerky side. Yeah, so, I mean, it's, it's weird because it's, it's not how we, what we expect from him. It's not what we expect from Ted and I if they, not just in terms of it not working, but also just in terms of it, you know, it's not really a YA. I mean, if it's an older YA as opposed to a younger YA. It doesn't have a strong protagonist. That's been one of the things is the night was a mystery in the first issue, you know? Right. And so it's very different from anything he's kind of done. Yeah, because you know, he's always had a central protagonist, and now we're working with a group of individuals plus an antagonist Batman kind of character. That, well, I mean, to, to drum it up slowly for people listening, there's like five or six people. They all have different abilities. 
and they're trying to make a big raid on the religious temple in the city because they feel it's corrupt and they want to rob it of its money. It's a very simple plot that gets more and more complicated when you consider the personal uh, intervention by the various members and their motives for being involved with this. Even the Batman character becomes a whole lot more interesting, this issue. So, yeah. It's nice yeah. to see that one sort of stabilize. You're right. It stabilized a little. I want it to stabilize even more where everything is running a little smoother, right. you know, from scene to scene. But, you know, that's not to say that it's it's a bad book. It's a little different from what we're accused, uh, accustomed to from Ted Nifa anyway, that's you know. True. But, uh, again, I'll still put it miles ahead of anything DC and Marvel are putting out right now. I mean, it makes us want to read it. You know, right. I want to find out. So, Ted, we're still on your side. Okay. So, um, next up, sort of the opposite of how we feel about Knight's Dominion, at least me, and giving it a chance and thinking it's stabilizing, is Killer Be Killed 4 by Ed Baker and Sean Phillips. And it's better than usual. It's still a piece of crap, but it's better than usual. Um, that, that protagonist is hard to like. It's just so... I just... What is this? I'm reading it, and all I can think is it's the most immature thing Ed Brubaker's ever written. Yeah, up there with uh, the stories he used to draw about him, like, stealing from a record store... They used but to those work were at. funny, and those observations were honest. The observations and things in this aren't. They're no, just, they're really not. You, you, you can argue that there's really not an honest emotion. Right. It's, and then the stupid girl character is just obnoxious. In yeah. addition, of course, to Brubaker writing her terribly, but she's just obnoxious, too, the way he does write her. It's just... I mean, I'm a nice guy, and I'm like... You know what? Just boff this chick and get her out of your life or something like that. You know, like I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm almost like ahead of the plot where I want the plot to go somewhere else with this guy. Mm-hmm. You know, like leave your roommate, leave this girl. You'd be much better off as a solo individual character in this book, and then you might have some direction to go in with it or something. I'm, you know, after what four issues, I'm still not sure. Where we're gonna be going with this? That's that's the problem. I mean, you can keep me in mystery, I guess, but I want to have some clue as to the fact that there's a plot worth developing that I want to continue to read it. Mm-hmm. He's got some problems here, and, and it's the, not problems we expect to see from Ed Brubaker. No, they talk about an editor again, and where's she? Where's this person? This mysterious person at that did such a great job with. Uh, the last book that we nominated is Fade Out 2015-16 Book of the Year or one of the books of the year where we, you know, we, we could sure we could sure like get the rugs pulled out of us because on one hand we were singing the chorus of Brubaker with Fade Out, but then we get treated to Kill or Be Killed, which is like, oh, you know what, you gave me the best award in the world, now I'll spit in your face because you did it, you know? So, eh, I just know. don't understand how anybody likes this book. You wonder if Ed Brubaker could ever write an extremely commercial property. Like, maybe he should have a couple beers with Mark Millar, okay? Like, something, yeah. Because yeah, he didn't... Some, yeah, Captain America wasn't, wasn't commercial. I mean, that was some of the issue with it. Daredevil wasn't commercial. No. Catwoman wasn't commercial. No. 
Sleeper was probably the most commercial thing he did. Uh, but he doesn't have a knack for writing hits. And here, this kind of hurts, which is unusual, because normally you and I will read anything Blue mm-hmm. Baker puts out and like it. But for some reason, Kill or Be Killed leaves a bad taste in your mouth all the time. It's very strange. Yeah. Uh, so you're going to talk about Moonshine, because everybody knows I don't read Brian Azzarello. That's all right. Brian, you don't have to read Brian Azzarello. And, you know, it's it's kind of sad that um, he's not being made, made better use of. Maybe he refuses to work for Marvel and DC these days because he thinks he can do it on his own. And while he does, he has kind of a limited imagination, um, he's still a decent mainstream author and can put together something. You know what I mean? So even though we're only two issues in with Moonshine, I kind of like it uh, because it's convincing it works as a story, and the characters all fit together, and nothing has jarred me from reading the story to where I get skeptical about anything or I question things, and that's pretty good, because it's still kind of seamless and smooth. Now, if you can handle this throughout the first arc or the entire story, I'd be really good with it, and I'll be the first to admit that Eduardo Rizzo's artwork is just... Oh, my God. The, the guy is probably one of the top ten artists working in comics right now. So he's a perfect uh, tool for Azarello to, to draw this realist story about Prohibition-era uh, bootleggers that team up with city mafioso to push booze, but it's in the deep Appalachians, and there's a hint of bad juju and werewolves and shit in there. And so far, two issues in, they're making it work. It's um, about this low-level criminal who's browbeat by his boss to go make an alcohol connection because he likes this booze this guy makes. It's really good. So he says, don't come back unless you get a connection that we can sell this guy's booze up in the city. And it turns out to be a much more complicated process than he thought when he went down there. And, And Rizzo's art just makes it all, like, convincing and smooth and it is a horror title. It started out as kind of crime noir, but it's more horror now. And, you know, again, it's a book that the mainstream publishers don't put out anymore. So I would recommend it just on its own quality level alone, you know. Okay. What's next? Next is, oh, shit. Here we go. Here we go. Profit. Yeah, you know, that that's a toughie. We've been bitching about that book for a while, and uh, this was the last arc in the last six issues. They're supposed to tie it up. And I feel, well, obviously let down. Not as bad of a train wreck as it could have been, but not very good of an ending either, unfortunately. I mean, they don't... This last issue that tries to do something similar that uh, Providence did with the cutting of the scenes and the time and everything doesn't come across as convincing. It, it's almost like, okay, this is our end, and we're done. And they really didn't discipline themselves to finish this book very well, which is sad because they had like four fucking trades of great mm-hmm. science fiction fantasy comics, you know? I mean, how did you feel about the ending? Same. I'm... It could have been a lot worse. Um, yeah. I felt... Um... They made some – they made some – the thing about Profit was is it wasn't like there were a lot of nostalgic 
moments in it. Like the stuff that they keep calling back to, like Die Hard and Ryan having like a flirtation and like this sort of not intimate romance that was all from their second issue together. Right. Like they got her yeah. on the team and then like the next issue, she had a crush on diehard and that was it. That's all we got. Right. There were so many left open things that they developed that they never like went back to or finished. Now, right. Am, and earth yeah. has been nothing. Earth Wars just been nonsense. It's non-existent. Yeah, and I mean, it's just like, this is just crap. This isn't what you promised in the first series, which ended like shit as well, as you recall. Yes. Um, when when you have a fucking profit dossier or whatever, like the who's who of profit that they did, and that was better than issue 25, not 25, 35. Yeah, wasn't that sad? Yeah, that was yeah. just, just so sad, you know? Yeah. It's pitiful. Yeah, so, it was- I mean, and then in the meantime, Brandon Graham has done that. He did his whole micro line of books at Image and all of those. Thanked. Well, and creatively as well. Like, I mean, it was just, I don't know. It's a disappointment. It's sad. I wish they could have finished it. I can't imagine. I can't imagine that we would have ever imagined they wouldn't have been able to finish it. Like they clear, they didn't have an idea. They didn't have an idea of how they right. wanted to finish this book. You know, the, the, there was again this lack of editor, which would have said like, "How are you going to do your ending? How are you going to do this? How are you going to do that?" There were no questions that were answered, and they felt this kind of obligatory ending. Oh wait, we got to tie it up, and the book sells like shit, and we're losing money, and no one's getting paid, so let's crank it out. And that's what it kind of felt like mm-hmm. because. All of the goodwill built up by the development of the characters was lost by the time we got to Earth War, and it didn't get any better. And I didn't expect a resolution of the plot because that's not what the book's about. It's about limit moments. It's about characters. It's about situations. It's about exploration of the thoughts in your mind, none of which is included in the finales to these books. And – I'm not going to beat a dead horse because we've already talked enough about Brandon Graham's failures as a comic book creator. But, you know, come on, guys. I mean, why go in? If you're in for a penny, you're in for a pound, for Christ's sakes. Why do you spend all this fucking time on this if you're not going to make it palatable? Okay. Right. Yeah. It, 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 what's that word I'm trying to find? It, it, it was a, a great example of indie creators who didn't know what they were doing or didn't give a shit or something. I don't know. There was something about the creative process here that utterly failed. Mm-hmm. And it could have been commercial marketing forces. It could have been them losing their ass. It could have been none of these guys making any money because the artists sure weren't working real hard on the last eight or ten issues. No. And uh, the coloring and the computer separations were saving the visuals for the most part. And I just felt bad. It left it, it was it was a melancholy taste in my mouth. But I, as a retailer, I've decided not to push the book anymore because it doesn't have any kind of resolution, you know, right. which is okay. But it's a disappointment. So, Brandon, you're still on our shit list. Now Vernon's going to continue with Goddamned Number Five, everyone. Goddamn Number Five. <laughs> okay, Goddamn Number Five. Um, Jason Aaron, another writer that you don't touch anymore, who's pretty much become corrupted by working for Marvel to no end, um, did a series with R.M. Guara, who used to be the illustrator for Scalped. 
and they team up on this five-issue biblical voyage of Cain and the post-apocalyptic world where God is obviously going to end this human existence. I mean, they make humans' existence wretched in this book. It is awful. There are no redeeming people at all in this book. None. And it is very dark. It could have ran in Heavy Metal Magazine when I was a kid. But you know what? I think in some ways it kind of had to be done because it was something the creators felt they needed to do. And the story of Cain, who's trying to seek his own death and figure out what his position is on Earth prior to the Flood, because the title is called Before the Flood... Um, he runs into Noah and his sons building an ark and having all, but but Noah and his sons are are real bastards and fascists and just subjugate humanity that's in front of them horribly. You know, treat them like I don't know energy <laughs> that they need to consume and throw into the meat grinder. It's a very dark, depressing, viscerally dull book or dark, dark, mean ass book. But in some ways it works, and uh, if they kept, keep it at five issues, that's good. I can't see them going on with this because it's just so downer. <laughs> but you know what? If you like heavy metal and you like that kind of stuff, it's still a lot better than the old stories that are in heavy metal. So I give it a thumbs up reluctantly. Let's put it that way. <laughs> I know. It's tough. Jason Aaron was such a good talent, and then – just went to hell writing Marvel shit. It's just really amazing sometimes. Yes, who would have thought? Who would have thought that the Marvel that would have broken you like that? I don't know. Yeah. Well, Marvel's broken a lot of writers. Marvel's, of and, but the weird thing is it's all been in the last 10 years. It's all been since Bendis started bringing people over like Brubaker. Right, right. Brubaker's exactly. the one guy who sort of survived it, but... When's the last time we went crazy for Matt Fraction or Jeff Parker? And Jeff Parker got his start at fucking Marvel, right? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, well, he was one of the talents that just, you know, again, he was one of the guys that was a great writer that just never wrote any hits. And that really hurts when you don't write hits. You don't get assignments. You don't get better assignments. And uh, the writing's on the wall, basically. If you can't write superheroes and make them work, then your your name is Mud. And it's sad because I'm sure Marvel pays very decent wages. You know what I mean? And some of these guys try and try and try and try, but then maybe that's what breaks them in the end. You know, you've got Jonathan Hickman and you got Matt Fraction. Matt Fraction actually got lucky. He's fairly successful on his own these days. Yeah. Um, but you're right. Marvel, it's kind of funny because even though we can't read Marvel, it's almost like Marvel is like a machine now that just churns up creators and really doesn't do anything interesting with them and may possibly cripple them for future efforts. I don't know. You know, it seems like a, a bad disease at this point. I'm not sure. So weird detective number five, finishing up weird detective. Now I read weird detective in a single sitting um, and realized that I'd read the first one, but I must've read it before a podcast and was just reading so I could talk about it and had, cause I didn't do a post on it. Um, so yeah, number five finishes up the book. Weird detective is kind of like a, a dark resident alien in a lot of ways. Um, especially with the finish, you know, it's like the book sort of is a pilot for the concept and it seems to work out. Um, yeah, it's got a lot of influences. 
Lovecraft, Silver Age, DC, 60s, John Jones stories, mm. uh, humorous stuff, you know, like it, the whole relationship with um, the alien who um, possesses a human and has a partner as a police person. And uh, I don't know, it, it works on that. Th- there's a lot of good chemistry in this book. It It's not perfect. But um, it, it gets you through it with its darker elements, its humorous tones. Who's the artist on this thing? Villanova? Yeah. G-U-I-U. If you know how to pronounce that, you're a better man than I am. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we'll call him Villanova. And he does five issues of some inspired-like visuals that aren't anything tricky or unusual, but, you know, they're very, really well done. And the guy yeah. is like, they, they're both creators want this. This is a, that's another Fred Van Lente project, believe it or not. Yeah, the man who wrote the comic book history of comics writes Weird Detective, too. He used to be Marvel stuff, didn't he? Back in the day, I think it the was. The reason I've never taken your Fred Van Lente advice before is because he wrote Hercules. And I read that fucking comic for the Jeff Parker backups of Agents of Atlas. Uh, and <clears throat> because I was reading them for the blog, I read the fucking Hercules features and they were just shit. They were just <laughs> shit. We it, saw it, Fred me, Valenti. Can anybody write Hercules and make him interesting? I'm not we sure. We saw Fred Valenti at Artist Alley at C2E2 the last time we, t- we were there. And I actually was like standing at the other end going, man, fuck Fred Valenti. Like, because that's how I act at the con, everybody. Like, everybody else goes to have a good time. I go to hide from people who I've had online inter. Um, altercations with. I look for the like four <laughs> You're people. You're the asshole that wrote up me. Right? I look for the four people who would be like happy to see me or like I hope would be happy to see me. And then the rest of the time I just walk around. Maybe if I see Tom Mandrake, I'm like, holy shit, it's Tom Mandrake. That's great. Or if it's Fred Valenti, I'm like, oh, the guy wrote those fucking Hercules comics. Ugh. (laughs) Yeah, Hercules has got to be the assignment nobody wants. Because he's such an uninteresting character, you can't really so, do much with him. Like bad, like man, the eighties Marvel. Like that's the thing is, is like how I tried to go back and read West Coast Avengers. I read that shit as a kid. I did. I know I did. I had a collection of West Coast Avengers. I can't do that. Like life is too short. Life is too short for Rom the Space Knight. I'm sorry. Yeah, him and his oven. And I feel bad because life is not too short for Gem, son of Saturn from uh, DC. Life is not too short to read uh, Camelot 3000 once. If you've never read it and you like art, you you need to read Camelot 3000. But there ain't shit from Marvel during that period. Right, that's true. Marvel was, I don't know, just... I don't know, they were in the beginning of their event cycle, the very beginnings of it, and it just nurtured into a beast that took over the company. Yeah, so anyway, um, how we got there is my hatred of um, Hercules. But next, Vernon's going to talk about Surgeon X number three. Oh, yeah, Surgeon X. You know, uh, the the book that was lauded because it was uh, edited by Karen Berger, who used to get head honcho at Vertigo. And, you know, I read this book, and I find it, it is a perfect Vertigo book. And when I read it, I said, God, if this is her influence, 
He is Vertigo. Okay? Karen Berger was Vertigo because the concept she approved or neutered or edited made that one of the most formidable labels in comics for 15 plus years. And so she was unceremoniously dumped by DC when they moved to the West Coast last year. And she's editing this book called Surgeon X, kind of a future parable um, that looks at the administration of health in the future. Who gets it? Who doesn't? Who's unable? Who's rich? What level of do they have? And she throws a famous family of surgeons into the mix. It's their story, essentially. And the one, um, God, I can't remember her name, but the protagonist in the book, she's the black sheep of the family that decides to go renegade and offer her own services wherever they need to be doing. Devil be damned about the law and ethics and morals of the 22nd century or whatever this is. And John Watkiss uh, illustrates it with this cold clinical style, which is his, and it kind of works. Um it's not a particularly exciting comic. It's about the inner family dynamics of the world they live in and how they administer their talents and how that affects the stories they're involved with. And um, again, it's like reading a decent Vertigo title to me, you know, back in the day or whatever, you know. And um, they come up with enough moral dilemmas and, and, and dynamic events that happen to this family that keep me going on it. So three issues in, again, no problems so far. I mean, it's 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 another one of those nicely executed stories about the dilemmas of how we administer health in this country and in the future and what it could turn into. And it's kind of a nice exploration as well. So again, I'm on board. You know, three issues in, it hasn't insulted my intelligence. And in the craftspeople behind it know what they're doing. I hope it succeeds. You know, I hope it I hope it gets an audience. I really do. Good stuff. What's on the next what's on the next list? Next is Flintstones. Meet the Flintstones. Um Our favorite Russell title. <laughs> the only one. The only one. Yes. It's our favorite Steve Pugh of the last five years too, because it's you know, he doesn't get a lot of work at the big big two either anymore. Weird, man. Um, yep. So Flintstones 5 is kind of their lightest issue. Vernon hasn't read it yet, has he? Six. Six? Yes. Six, and I have Six. read it. Six. You have read it? Yes. Okay. So, I mean, in a way, it's their lightest issue. I mean, they deal with some of the dark, unfun stuff, and then they don't go after that. You know, it's not like issue yeah. three or anything. Instead, they he Russell plays for humor. Um, and it, about it, the apocalypse. About the works. apocalypse. And it, it works really well. Um, yeah. it, it's his first, like, book-length story because I think he dealt with two or three inner plots uh, in the rest of the issues. This one he pretty much focuses in on the uh, apocalypse, the end of Earth. And what it means to the Flintstones yeah. universe, basically. and that's 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 pretty much it. And it's really weird how he's approached this, not in terms of it being successful, but in terms of what you expect from a Flintstones comic. Just hearing that, I mean, these are not the stories of Fred and Wilma or 
pebbles. It's just the story of bedrock, really. It's it's really yeah. There's no of, domestic drama here. No. You're right. Yeah. It's it, not it sets a it apart. Yeah. It's not about Fred and Wilma this time. Yeah. Even though they're helpless witnesses to the entire thing, because right. they go, they bounce from scene to scene to scene to scene, and they go to these things and they they witness how other people are reacting. Right. To the Basically, even their kids to some degree. Yes. So. And what good. is it? They bring back. Who's that lazy ass scientist who's in there all the time? Who's he based on? Carl Sagan, I think it is. Okay. Yeah, yeah. He, he's, oh, he's, the, the, the. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, he's yeah. good stuff. It's good stuff. You know, again, you know, it, it costs a buck more than the average DC title, but it's worth it. It's worth it. It's so, <laughs> it's so weird to imagine where this is going to go. I mean, it's. I've said that I feel like the Hanna-Barbera line is DC's best reaction to um, Afterlife with Archie. And yeah, yeah. The difference is, though, Flintstones is really its own thing, whereas Afterlife with Archie and, say, Sabrina are different, but they sort of follow. I mean, you're not breaking the mold. I mean, they're the they're same, the same mold. They're, right, they're, they're serialized the there. Right, they're a serialized narrative, whereas Flintstones feels like you aren't catching every episode. It feels like watching it on, you know, just regular. Yeah, you're watching yeah. reruns of the Flintstones. You know, it's it's cool. It's really awesome how well yeah. this is working out, and the rest of the Hanna Barbera line is a disaster at best. So, yeah, I, I mean, really... like if you even call it a disaster, you're taking it more seriously than it, it needs to be. taken. I agree. They're strictly just mind. Uh, they're just mindless entertainment. Let's put it that way. But the Flintstones strives to be like that one notch more right. with a little bit of social humor and pointed political commentary. And uh, I, I, I hope that they can get 12 out of this. That'd I don't know cool. if they can go on and, Definitely, but it'd be good if he got 12 issues out of that. I hope DC doesn't cancel it early. Let's put it that way. Uh, okay, so now it's time to talk about uh, the crown jewel of 2016 because there isn't time for anything else this good to come out. I'm just going to say that. Yeah, that's the probably last, true. The last great comic of 2016. And what a fucking great comic it is. Providence but, 11. Uh, Alan Moore. Oh, I'm gonna miss his ass. He's a bastard. He's a he, bastard for quitting. I, I, I'm so mad that he saved up enough money to retire from comics. It really pisses me off because he's just I mean, so good. When you, we've had all these questions about Providence, and I mean, just really basic ones like what happens when there's no more commonplace book. Like, is it going to run? How's the commonplace book just going to run? What's the experience of reading Providence going to be like? Because issue 10 sort of does have a final sense to it. And we're reading it going, how the fuck are there two more issues? Like, yeah. what's going to happen? Robert, um, is it Robert Black? Robert Black. Yeah, he finally realizes his place in the book after nine issues. Of yeah, and so what happens after that moment, you know? And so... We find out, or I mean, we at least we we at least take the journey to find out what that means as readers, and it's so. 
there's like moments in it where you're just like, oh, it's Alan Moore flipping off DC over Watchmen. You know, oh, it's Alan Moore doing this. Oh, it's Alan Moore doing It's Alan Moore showcasing just how much better he could have done all these things. Than... He showboats all the way through this <laughs> almost silent issue, except for the soundtrack. Except for the soundtrack, um, which I'll post to the, the – it's uh, it's actually not on Comics Vondel. I'll post it to the Comics Gallery Facebook page, but um, – Well, there's a record that there's keeps a record getting cut playing. to a visual, so you know that it's supposed to be the soundtrack – to all the images you're looking at in the so, issue. Yes, and I I, I I match that to the the very cinema uh, cinematographic framing of the whole issue, and yes. so it's not perfect because I didn't play with it and I didn't try to pace it out so you have enough time. But you get the sense because I read the comic as I'm as actually as I was writing the. Uh, the post about Providence 11, I was like, Oh yeah, the song, I wonder what it, I wonder, I wonder what it's at, uh, what the experience of reading the book is like with the song. And so right, I just put it the, on yeah, and the I was reading it. Listening just to like, the song and you want to hear it, you know, I'm just like, Oh fuck. Like it's so, this is like the black dossier only, you know, Alan Moore, if the record had been integrated, but, but into there's the even less participation by us needed than by exactly. Dossier. It's just and it's just you can't explain it because I, I mean, I guess there's big spoilers that we could talk about, but it doesn't. It's oh, I, the creepiest. The creepiest scene in there is like when it like okay, it's 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 post semi post protagonist and. The creepiest scene in there is the panel of all the Lovecraftian toys at the pop culture store. That is the creep. I never thought I'd see a, an, a day when stuffed Cthulhu dolls held me in such utter torment. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because right. when placed within the the the, the storyline it really takes on a really different significance. Yes, and it's that it's that weird pop culture Alan Moore, that Alan Moore who's aware of pop culture, that Alan Moore who who fucking told us in interviews that he wanted to talk about the sort of removing the fear from Lovecraft with this book. I do think he do you think he succeeded in that? I mean, if anything, well, no, he Lovecraft as a prophet after this, you know, and I mean, not well, that I would take it seriously because it's on another dimension, but it's just really close to home. It really is. It is. And it's just, it's his masterful retelling of, you know, what was really great as issue, like last issue, you get the guest star appearance by, is it Johnny? What's the name? The mass character who appeared in an earlier Lovecraft-influenced story by Moore. Uh, and that doesn't necessarily lead into Neonomicon, but the story's protagonists certainly make guest appearances in this thing. Right. It's just really unsettling and close to the bone and very poignant in a socially commentary sort of way, you know. Creepy as shit, man. I mean... It was and, just and, too much. And I mean, it, we... 
And it wasn't like the graphic shit of issue 10 or 6 either. It was the imagined horror that we create in our minds by the reality we have made for ourselves. Mm -hmm. And it's just... Alan Moore breaks down the traditions. I'm really tired of people who say, oh, you know, he's a genre writer. You know what? He examines genres to the nth degree and, and picks apart all the little things that make them fascinating and brings them to the forefront to make a point about things. And I don't know what the fuck he's going to do for his show. I hope it's not. I yet. know, because... I I don't we, want to be suicidal by the next issue. You know, well, I mean, like, that was, I, I don't think I made the joke on here, but uh, Matt, guy who writes uh, at Comics Fondle, as uh, two, he and I did a Providence special, and um, I was like, I, I somehow want Alan Moore to teach me how to speak the Chitholu language, you know, subconsciously <laughs> through the last two issues, so I can like understand. Can yeah, so I can understand the last frame, and it's driven me insane. You know, it's just like uh, he's only got one issue because I mean, Promethea he did a big finish too, but he had two issues. This he's only got one more to go. There's no Providence 13. Oh, unless he's a fucking bastard. What Avatar's done that before? Remember uh, Wormwood? Yeah, we have like an addendum. Yep. Well, so, don't forget, Providence was told the same way. And it was done with a Alan Moore prose story that was adapted for comics by, was it Anton? And that just blew us away, and then he does a sequel. Then Moore does his own sequel, with Burroughs doing right. art every time. So basically what you see with this is Burroughs going from being Steve Dillon, the, the, the soft-serve ice cream version of Steve Dillon. Oh, God, Steve with, Dillon's with dead, isn't crap. he? Yes, he is. So, but, but, but Okay, yeah. anyway, so... It's an app description. Yes, um... To, to being the new Steve Dillon, basically, with this one. I mean, yeah. his Jason style Rose. is just... I, and especially this issue where it's so important. The visuals in this issue are... When uh, you look at an, yeah, when you look at an Alan Moore script and it's filled with minutia and details, Jason... Burroughs captures that like a hundred times better than Dave Gibbons does in the Watchmen. I right. Mean, down, I mean, and that's, yeah. that's the thing is, is like, you think Watchmen is the best Alan Moore could do. Imagine if Alan Moore did Watchmen today, imagine oh how much better it would be. How much better of a writer he is in 20 oh years. Oh my God. 30 I mean, years. Give him, you know, what is it? You know, come on. He's got a daughter. You know, pay for her children. Well, shit, the world's going to end, so it doesn't matter. But yeah, it I, mean, doesn't matter. <laughs> I, I guess there isn't enough money to pay him. But, I mean, just imagine Alan Moore doing a fucking swamp thing today. He yeah, never he do so it. Much. He'd no. never do it. But it would be no, so good. I mean, just, yeah. just technically speaking. He's grown as a writer so much. And I mean, that's like sort of the beauty of Alan Moore 
is that you as a reader grow with him. You, you know, we've grown with Alan Moore over the last uh, 30 years of comics, right? And he has made us expect more from our comics. Right. And I mean, that's like, honestly, how you can say, well, how do some people give Brubaker a pass? Well, they weren't there for Catwoman. No, right. You know, like for them, Fatal worked out better than it did for us, you know, like yeah. yes. they didn't we, know what he could do. Yeah. Yeah. So, I, I mean, mean, Alan Moore, it's, it's going to be so sad because like, I don't like when you, when you, when you suggest that he goes back perhaps and read does Swamp Thing again or Watchmen today, you're like, God, I, I don't even know if it would even resemble what it was because he, he, he takes the, um, the ante, he continuously ups the ante, okay, on everything he does. Even, like, nominal eight- or ten-page things that appear in Cinema Purgatorio mm-hmm. are just, like, exercises in his brain of a writer. They're not even, like, fully realized or thought about in great detail, like something like uh, uh, Providence is, obviously. Right. Providence took a lot of time. In a previous work, Cross Plus 100 took a yes, lot Yes, it did. And you're oh. like, these are not just something he dashed out. These are something that he thought about, he considered, he he thought about the ramifications of how the stories end. I mean, there's nothing that he did not consider when constructing these stories. And Providence just, if you think that Ellen Moore has like hit his apogee, you haven't read Providence. You know what I mean? Because it's a great swan song. I mean... If he if he fulfills his promise with twelve, which whatever God knows where that's going to lead us, right? What would he do after that? Maybe that's when he's going to quit because you can't do anything better than that. I don't know, you know. And taking like a relative unknown artist like Jason Barrows and investing him with the power to illustrate all this shit that's coming out of his mind and to do so so well that you're like. Fully enveloped in the story, scared to death, afraid to turn the pages. You don't want to see what's coming next. And none of it is graphic violence. Nope. Well, some of it is, but not much. Avatar can't fuck this up. They cannot fuck up this collection. You know, it's weird. They've got, like, the first four issues at hardcover. That's That, I was just reading, that's a limited thing. That was a limited it, thing. It was, and now they're going to do a reprint in January. And they said it's absolute last time. And you know why? Because Lovecraftians Fucking have figured pricks. out that it's – Oh, they're all – you know, I, what was it? They're, those $20 uh, collection, the first four issues, $20 retail. At their highest point on eBay about a month ago, they're going for 80 And I, I sold one it. of mine. Yeah. I got and one I too. Sold, yeah. Yeah. I sold one of mine at 55 And I'm like – it's the Lovecraftians. They're they're like they're like oh my god, you know. And he's speaking in tongues. I mean, it's like <laughs> Lovecraft times, you know. I, I have no doubt in my head that Alan Moore did enough research to make the even the 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 Lovecraftian Cthulhu language as accurate as he possibly could. Oh, I'm sure. You know, I'm sure. Um... Now it, it, it's interesting too. The um, post. Because Lovecraft, at the last two or three issues, becomes a fellow protagonist with Henry Black. Yes. Robert Black. He's Chewbacca to Han Solo. He's Chewbacca to Han Solo. And how he finishes is 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 basically, he takes over. 
You know what I mean? How Lovecraft life takes over Mr. Block's place in the story in issue 11, kind of. You know what I mean? We, we, we have a certain... Be careful, Vernon. You don't... I know. We're trying not to give a spoiler. Anyway. I know. We don't spoil it. But it's just like he took this book and just shot it in a completely... Well, he didn't shoot it. It's like he had an ending for it, and it just takes over. It, it doesn't, like, follow Robert Black as much as it does make a point about its own existence as a yes. story. I mean, in, in, in a way, this is... I mean, you have to... You, thinking about it in terms of the commonplace book is important. Because when we started reading Providence, you didn't read the commonplace book in one of the issues. I didn't read the church pamphlet in one of the issues. I read it on the, when I went back and read the first four issues. So Moore's really doing something almost mixed media in the same package with back matter, which is not something like I love Lazarus. You tell me I have to read that fucking back matter. I will like, I, I can't do it. Like my brain can't read a bunch of fucking dystopian sci-fi shit. Um, like right, right. A, a made up bullshit. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like you know, like that's not. We love Lazarus, but we can't read the back matter. Right. Whereas with Providence, it quickly became as an essential part of the comic and and how Moore's basically conditioning the reader. Yes. Yes. And so when we get to issue 11 after the commonplace book is is finished. And the, the commonplace back. book, by the way, being a wonderful sort of I guess um what would we call it? After Watchmen. Ha ha ha. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. It takes okay. a lot of the same dramatic conventions. <clears throat> Yes. So, I mean, it's just so cool what he's... And I guess we hadn't thought about Providence in those terms of it being one of Alan Moore's last comics. Not until we read it, anyway. Well, no, I mean, <laughs> and he's also said it, right? Like, Sinon yeah. Purgatorio. And really what we're seeing is we're seeing this Alan Moore who... Um, more with Sinon Purgatorio than with Providence, who is... Though this issue is very much, I mean... Conceptually, if they did this as a motion comic, like a like a it, it'd be three minutes and thirty and forty two seconds because of the length of the song. But if they like expertly cut this as a motion comic, I'd pay fourteen ninety five to watch it in a second. Oh, yes, yes, like, you know, in a second, right? Like just because. Anyway, so. He's he's playing with the format and he's showing that comics can do all these things that for the last 20 or 15 years, they've been saying that they can't do that. You know, league of extraordinary gentlemen, all the, all the Alan Moore adaptations, V for vendetta, all these things. He's showing that comics can do these, tell these stories better than you can in other media. Right. You think you're watching a film, right? And, it, it, that's amazing because you're not watching a film. You're reading a comic and you're sequentially going from the pages. And you can go back to an image and go continue on mm -hmm. or you can pause. And we're not and, hearing the song. 
I mean, that's no, we're not even hearing the we song. Don't even, yeah. it, it, it just has to be perfect. I mean, that's like the song choices. More has to make it perfectly match. Yes, it, but it's not because it, we've already experienced the emotions of the song by reading the issue, and it's just it's just one of those things that he's. He's irreplaceable in comics. Like Graham right. Morrison can just, you know, give it up. Anyway, like, yeah. Can go I mean, like, no one might miss him. Yeah, yeah. Well, no, I'm just saying that he's been, Graham Morrison has always argued that, you know, he's superior to Alan Moore. Well, that's a false argument. And I mean, Providence, I mean, for fuck's sake, if Moore had just. Worked on uh, that that other adaptation, the the model one. What the hell was that? Remember that a couple oh, of years oh, ago? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that that was a play he wrote that was adapted by right by Anthony. Anthony Johnson. If Moore had done the adaptation, or even if he just rewritten the Anthony Johnson stuff, it would have been the best fucking comic ever. Like, yeah. yes, I mean, and it was pretty good without exactly yeah. it had some great issues it might have had some problems at some point but i do remember reading it going holy fucking shit did anthony johnson just figure out how to do this no he didn't uh, but he did for uh, a couple issues so right it's just providence is just this it needs to have a great presentation it needs it needs an absolute edition. It needs to get it needs a cheap edition. It needs to get into as many hands as they can get it into, which is something that top shelf would understand about it that I'm yeah. not sure that Avatar does. Yeah, right. Avatar is a more of a commercial publisher that just You puts... need to get Ava you need to get Providence in the sight line of anybody who reads Stephen King. You need to just yeah. Anybody could handle horror could like, like when my customers come in and um, it was funny because uh, I had a young fellow who grew up in my shop and he was going to college and he ended up going to like Ole university. And uh, he says, you know, I'm really digging a horror and I'm like an Alan Moore. got anything? I go, yeah, we got Neo something, but I didn't have it in stock at the time he was there. And Terry's shop, uh, third coast comics was just down the block from Loyola. I go, Go into there, tell them I sent you, tell them you need a copy of Neonomicon because I didn't have one. So you know what Terry's response was? We don't carry that crazy shit around here. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Right. So it it, it tells you the general acceptance of Alan Moore's Lovecrafting infused stuff with some comics retailers who may or may not be ready to cross that threshold to carry such product. I mean, when you think about it, though, Neonomicon is more – well, now, well, yes, Neonomicon is harsher than Providence because all of Providence's harshness is based directly in Lovecraft. Neonomicon right. is realizing the threats of Lovecraft in a modern setting. But it's right. but Providence but is you, – But there's no way – like in Neonomicon, you know you're reading a fictional piece of right. drama. But in Providence, there's no such guarantees. You so, think yeah. it's reality. Even though he sets it from the very beginning in a, in a kind of alternative dimension with the suicide house and everything. These right. don't exist in our plane of existence. But he says, okay, this is a fictional story. But then he just catches you up and drags you along to the point where you don't even realize it's 
a fictional story anymore. Right. You know, you're, this you're might be about a going, real author on a, a journey of discovery. As you're book, just you sitting know? there going, how the fuck have I not heard about these suicide houses before? Like, I should have heard of that. <laughs> yeah. It, it, I, I, you and I are not familiar with Lovecraft, but I'm just wondering if this is... I uh, think it's an, one. Like, it's related to the thing in the first issue, the mystery, the yellow room. Okay. Um, actually... Uh, it's very weird because it's Alan Moore doing a period piece with a lot of period detail and then not drawing attention to that. Usually when yeah. a guy does this kind of work, uh, the Nathaniel Dusk series in the 80s, the two Don McGregor ones, I can't remember how good they are, but there's there's so much detail in it that, you know, McGregor's doing historical detail down to this was a rainstorm on this day before this parade and things like that. Alan Moore clearly is doing the same level of it, only he's not talking about what he's doing. He's not he's not sharing with us. Oh, well, I had to look at the, you know, my fucking kid had to go to the Boston library and get me this newspaper like, yeah, it was her job. Like, you know, he's not telling us there's no narrative. The motives aren't evident. Right. It's just. What we get, um, we we it's do the, have to move on from Providence, though, because I feel like uh, we've been talking about it for twelve I know, minutes. For like ten minutes now. Sorry, but it, it, it <clears> just, <throat> we're just a couple of giddy old ladies when it comes to reading Alan Moore. What can we say? <clears throat> so, I mean, maybe we'll do a Providence special. I don't know. Matt and I want to do a Providence wrap up. I don't know. Maybe we could put together the first ever Comics Fondle threesome. Who knows? Where Ooh, we could just a threesome. Uh, three threesome. men. I'm not talking about that. Uh, three He's, men and Alan yeah. Moore. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm sure he would enjoy that. We should send a copy to Alan Moore and see what he says. Uh, uh, anyway. Anyway. Uh, okay, so Vernon's going to do a marathon of three comics, which isn't really a marathon because he made me do a marathon of three comics. But – He's going to do three comics, then we're going to talk about a trade, then we're then we're going to talk about collections. It's a long episode, everybody. You know, thank, you're welcome. You're welcome. Yeah, you get to spend more welcome. time with us. You know, like, you should send <laughs> our wives gifts because yeah, they're upset Yeah, because they're the us. ones that truly suffer for they our suffer. Art. Yes. Yeah. They, they lose <laughs> I'm not out home. I've got to do a two-hour podcast where they have right. It's very important. It is. Well, anyway, there were three releases that I thought came out this week and in our ever-ending quest to be modern and up-to-date and much more cooler than our fellow podcast people, which we already are, but let's throw some fucking icing on the cake. Um, three books that came out this week that deserve your attention, or at least two. Um, I've got two copies of one. Let me see what the other one was here. Oh, yeah, the other one I don't even need. Uh... We'll go from we'll go there there's the good, the okay and the bad, and we'll go from the okay, which was violent love. Uh second issue came out by Frank Barbier and Victor Santos, one of our favorite artists. Um it's kind of a noir style about a female fatale who goes through a lot of shit and becomes a vengeful, revengeful person back in the sixties, uh and it's filled with violence and love. And, uh, again, it's a well-executed book. I'm not sure there's anything in here that we haven't seen before, but Victor Santos adds a lot to the proceedings with his very unusual and expressionistic artwork. Uh, Violent Love is recommended. The first two issues are pretty good, and this is published by Image, so the creators own it. Again, if you see an Image book we recommend, buy it, because the creators benefit from it and not Marvel and DC. <laughs> All right. Well, that's it. You mean and, Disney and uh, 
who the f- and Warner before Fox buys them. Whatever. Continue. Yeah. Right. You know what? Talk for one second. I got to get a copy of Motra. I'll be right back. Okay. So, um, Victor Santos also, uh, the reason we love him is because he, he did a book called Furious, um, which uh, everybody should read. I'm going to read it again. I'm going to read The Trade of Furious, but Furious uh, by a guy named, oh, geez, and uh, I'm, I'm not Googling, which is bad. It's His name's Brian, like... Uh, uh, Miller's in there. Glass. This is terrible. I'm sorry. There's no chance you listen to this podcast. Hopefully, so. my, my my fault. I didn't mean to throw you on like that. No, 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 no. What's the name of the guy who wrote Furious? Brian. Shit, we met this guy. We met this guy. I know. I just started talking about it, telling people to read it, and I'm like, I don't fucking remember what his name uh, is. This we'll, is we'll bad. Post it. We'll, we'll, we'll post it up on the website. No, now that you're talking, I'm Googling. Um, oh, okay. Well, anyway, we went from the decent, which was Violent Love, to the second selection, which is Motra, okay? Um, Oni Press is, well, not just Oni. Who's Brian J.L. Glass. Glass. Nice fella. Not Read Miller. The There's no Miller. Read the book. Brian J.L. Glass. All right, continue. Anyway, anyway. Um, uh, Oni and IDW have somehow fallen under the thrall of this independent group led by Ulysses Farinas and Eric Frietas. And they had a nice anthology last year from IDW of short stories, which I thought were okay. But it's like when a writer like starts something and doesn't really bake it into a full cake, it kind of comes up as shorthanded and undeveloped. And they're a bit of a indie darling so only decided to do this series called motro which is getting a lot of publicity and went to second print so i'm like okay i wasn't really on their league first time around with the anthology so i'll try motro and they're doing the judge dread comic and that's kind of left me cold too that's where i, I know the name that, from yeah. yeah and um i had to i hate to say it you know because i don't want to knock indie people but this is the most under nourished, underdeveloped writing I think I've ever seen in a comic book that's professionally pr- pr- printed and produced. Motro has about 30 seconds of story in a 20-page book, and for some reason, uh, they're under the thrall of these guys who don't really have a developed story or any kind of level of complexity. It's almost like an a bad indie experiment where you allow your children to do whatever they want and none of it really comes out particularly well. And I don't want to knock these guys because I don't want to knock any artist because Lord knows it's hard enough to be a creative person. But uh, Motro just had nothing to want to bring me back to the second issue. And yet it's being printed a second time. So maybe, maybe I'm in the minority. I don't know what I'm talking about. But we'll have to work on these guys a bit. But I'd much rather talk about a new book came out. Um, the creative team that didn't have much luck over the DC 52 with the uh, Black Canary reboot, which would be um, Brendan Fletcher, Cameron Stewart, and Babs oh, Tarr. Yeah. Right. Um, they did Black Canary for a while. Didn't really hit at DC. I thought it was all right. Batgirl. Right. Or Batgirl. Right. Batgirl. They put her in college and all sorts of stuff. And it was okay. Probably one of DC's better 52 books. I won't argue with that. 
But with this motor crush, they got like motorcycle racing and kind of like a, not necessarily a Mad Max vein, a little lighter than that. And it talks about the female protagonist who is a motorcycle racer and the trials and tribulations she goes through to earn a living, keep under her dad's roof, stay alive, and be one of the best racers. And it's a really nicely done comic. I mean, from the visuals to the writing to the uh, computer separations to uh, Fletcher and Stewart's fascination with social media. In the Batgirl <clears throat> series, they had Twitter and they had all this kind of like social media they kept mm-hmm. bringing up and all that stuff. And they do it to even more success in Motocross with texting and video imagery and having that continue to the narrative. Like, if you look at Frank Miller's narrative of television screens in Batman Dark Knight Returns, this is up to the next ante with people who really understand visual storytelling in a much more sophisticated way than Frank Miller did. And uh, the the protagonist in Motocross, this female motorcycle rider, is just really cool. I mean, I, I, I sound like a stoned idiot when I say the word's really cool about a protagonist, but... She is very sympathetic. She's very good. She's, uh, she executes her motorcycle riding, and all during it, the visuals just perfectly complement the stories. It's a, uh, it's a good package. And, you know, something, if you're interested in that subject matter, like Motocrush is just a real fun comic, and I have to recommend it highly. Get that first issue before, uh, before the comics retailers uh, up up the first prints to a ridiculous amount of money. Ah! I'm done. All right. So I'm going to really quick talk about uh, Mockingbird uh, Trade 1 by That Chelsea. controversial book that we talked about in our last podcast. Uh, controversial book. Controversial uh, something. Situation. Uh, situation. Controversial situation. Not really. Ca- eh, shitty situation. Yeah, shitty. Um. So, yeah, I finally got the, I finally got the book. Uh, and read it, and uh, it's it's fucking great. Like it's only like seven issues, but that's a whole series, I think, in one book, right? Yeah, uh, there were eleven issues, so there's going to be another trade. But no, the first issue is fine, and I think we even might have talked about it on the podcast, or we talked it, it, about it on a call where you were like, "Yeah, it's, it's fine." You know, like yeah. you know, it's like funny. It's like a Marvel book. It's fine. Like it's like a fine like. You know, She-Hulk, right? Like, well, well, amidst all this, like turning over to female characters, Mockingbird was originally a female character. So when she gets a little radical about being a female character, it's an easier adjustment, right? So you know, the first issue is fine, right? Um, Vernon was on target; it was fine. Like, I don't think yeah. I would have gone back. Then with the second and third issues, it just starts getting really fucking good. Which I already said. But then the second issue is her rescuing Lance Hunter. And everything starts getting complicated with the way the panels and the dialogue works. And there's a visual sense to it. And then how it plays, just the humor of it, but also how the characters work together. And how it works with Mockingbird as a character. Right, so Bobby. I mean that, Bobby, right? How it works with Bobby as a character. Well, then in the third one, it's totally fucking different because it's about this teenage girl who's got 
super early onset superpowers. And it's a fucking puberty um, period me uh, metaphor. For the first time since Alan Moore did it with fucking werewolves in uh, Swamp Thing, you know, back Swamp in 85. That pissed yeah, off. Yeah, going through the menstrual cycles. Yeah, yeah the menstrual cycle. Sorry, uh, dude show here. But, um, yeah, so, I mean, like, they go, she does that. And, like, that's awesome. Then with the and there's like action in with this shit, and then the fourth one, it's um, Hawkeye's in there, so I mean that's awesome. And then the fifth one ties it all together, and then there's a the sort of pilot that they did last year, which was a Agents of Shield special or something. But yeah, yeah so I mean, like, like a secret agent, right? It, yeah, not a lot of powers. Mockingbird didn't have like these really overt. A spectacular power. Right. But then there's like a lot of science, which is funny because when you think about these uh, Marvel superhero chicks, they're always scientists. Like I think Tigra's a fucking scientist. Scientists are daughters of scientists, right. yes. And so like when's the last time they used any science? So this all has like the science. This is this is Mockingbird as an Alan Moore science hero. Like oh, it's cool. Yeah, it's really fucking cool. So now they had that was it Cassandra Kane who wrote it, and she was an outside literary yeah. person who wrote a lot of prose novels. And you know, she brought something fresh and interesting to the book. I only read a couple issues because I would just like pick them up yeah. occasionally. But I'm mean, like, you know, this is different from your Marvel book. It was kind of halfway between a mainstream Marvel read and one of those more arty things that the independent guys do, who do Squirrel Girl right. and uh, and whatever Hellcat do. You know what I mean? Right. It's kind of middle of there it's still held on to its realistic roots though so Rob, bobby was a, a real person is mockingbird and it talked about right. life. yeah so and it was more yeah it was very self-examining you know so i'm glad that it they sold a bunch of them because at least people are going to read a good comic now so and hopefully cassandra kane will be back someday that's but not her name chelsea kane cassandra kane is batgirl thank you Thank you, thank you. Bad girl. Um, well, the the deaf dumb. She's not dumb anymore. She talks now, so it's kind of anyway. I remember yeah. Anderson Gabbridge wrote that, but I got to read yeah. those again. Anyway, moving on to Vernon talking about his trade of the week or month. Uh, you know, was every once in a while, like here here we are with an IDW book again, kind of a cool art project. IDW produces a lot of licensed shit. Okay, and I understand they got to pay the bills, so I forgive them for that, but I'm never fucking touching G.I. Joe or Transformers. However, they also have the Disney license, and with that comes European reprints. Think of some how fucked up that is, though. What? They have the Disney license. Yes, but they produce a lot of shit. No, no, no. Disney owns Marvel. Oh, I didn't even think about it. You're right. And, you know, Marvel doesn't reprint Disney shit, but IDW and does. And boom, lost a Disney license. Yes. That's think about amazing. how fucked up that is. Well, you know what? Marvel, Marvel, I'm glad Marvel didn't publish this book. Okay. Because um, Louis Trondheim is one of my favorite cartoonists ever. He is someone, um, I think he's French. Um, he plays with the conventions of comic storytelling and formats and previously he's been published quite extensively by Fantagraphics and NBN in America translated versions and he is probably one of the most accessible sophisticated 
cartoonist that plays with the medium so successfully. It's just, it's great stuff. Trondheim is someone that really should be um, experienced if you love great cartooning. So anyway, to get back to the point, all these guys, they do work for Disney because Disney pays them to do good stories. And I think for whatever reason, America does not produce Disney stories anymore, but all the Europeans do a good job. Louis Trondheim teamed up with the artist. He's only known as Karamitas. Yeah, Karamitas. I'm going to assume it's Greek, but I really don't know. And um, Mickey's Great Craziest Adventures is a collection of, oh, I'm going to guess about 30-plus strips that supposedly Trondheim and Karamitas found in an antique store under these old four-color or gold key things, and they're all single-page strips of an adventure with Mickey Mouse and Donald Duck, and they go all over the place, different dimensions, different cities. The whole time they're trying to chase Peg Lake Pete, and who are Scrooge McDuck's, uh, the, the brothers. It was yeah. like the, the, the brothers, whatever. They, they were like bears or something anyway. And it is all over the place. They said that they couldn't rescue every single strip, so they broke it down. There was like 88 of them, and they've got 30 of them in here. And it is a tour de force of cartooning, uh, both in the mind of Trondheim, who conceived these things, and Deramidas, who actually executed the drawing here. And taken as a whole piece, the thing is one wonderful, wacky, all-over-the-place adventure between Mickey and Donald as they try to catch up with Peg Lake Pete and the Beagle Brothers. And for fourteen ninety-five, you get a masterpiece of comic book cartooning storytelling. If you have any penchant for Disney, Mickey, and Donald... They are drawn kind of maniacally in here, too, a little bit different from the Disney norm. But thank God for the Europeans not sticking to the American standards. And it is probably one of my most favorite trades of the year so far just because it's just so innovative and good. And how often can you say something with the words innovative and good when you attach it to Disney product? It doesn't happen very often. So that's my trade of the month anyway. All right. Yeah. All right. Well, you know what? Anybody who's not into comics reviews can tune out now probably because we'll talk a little bit about media before we hit the bricks, right? Yes. We're going to talk real quick about um, we just had the Supergirl Flash Arrow Legends of Tomorrow crossover. Um, Aliens. Aliens. Adaptation of Invasion uh, from 1987 or 88. Todd McFarlane did some fucking art on that uh, crossover. Well, thank God it doesn't resemble that at all. You know, it was it was a very um, it was a, it was the first DC crossover that resembled a Marvel one. Is how I'll okay. say it. Vernon Invent- doesn't give a shit. I didn't, read- like, I didn't read comics in 1988. What Starman? What the fuck was that? Not uh, not the James Robinson one, but the one with the guy with the surfer hair. Um, Get me out of here. Oh, man. At least they haven't re- rescued him for uh, the TV. But anyway, so the TV miniseries was awesome. Uh, the did you, did you watch all of it? I watched them all. Yes. And, I, you know, it's kind of funny because if you fall behind in one day, then you got to fall behind the next because then uh-huh. you don't want to watch them out uh-huh. of sync. And, you know, it really doesn't matter. The producers made these all four different shows and – 
the Supergirl, the very first one, has like this slender ending that includes aliens. Yes. And the other three shows focus entirely on it and can be viewed separately to some degree. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, I was amazed that CW stole Alan Moore's plot for two of their shows recently. Um, the Man That Has Everything, the yeah. Superman Annual, that's been used in two of the CW shows lately, Supergirl and uh, Arrow. You're right. And uh, I thought that was cool because they had to deal with the non-powered people in Arrow, which made it easier. And uh, But it all worked out. I mean, I was wondering, like, the disparate, like, powers and situations, mm-hmm. were they able to tie it together? And while it was kind of loose, it kind of worked. I didn't have a problem with it. And I enjoyed watching it. Yeah, I thought it, I thought um, <clears throat> the Legends one is sort of just the, the they, there's a literal party um, at the end of the Legends, which is cool. I mean, yeah. that was cute. There's some really funny jokes in there, um, in jokes. And then it's, um, yeah, it worked out nicely, uh, better than I was expecting and, you know, the, the weird thing is, is that it actually all acted as a pilot for Supergirl when you think about it. Because the first episode has Supergirl. <clears throat> you watch Supergirl. Yep. But it has nothing to do with what's going on. No, it's like the last five minutes of the show. I mean, it's the last five minutes of the show. I saw somebody describe it as, wasn't it cool how we got all these guys to watch Supergirl, which is like a lesbian <laughs> romance? And then... <laughs> I'll talk about that at the end. So anyway, so there's that, and then, um, <clears throat> but then she just shows up. She gets all the best moments in the crossover. She really does. She really comes across as good, especially when they in the Flash episode where he introduces their secret weapon, Supergirl, and she like uses her heat vision to make the big S in the concrete floor. Yeah. So they, she, well, all she does is fly. Well, she's she's a pretty badass here. You know, here's how I demonstrate. And you never. And- uh, it's just she doesn't get to do that on her own show. She's not and it's it's this weird thing that we don't think about with how she would work. Um because with the aliens they all have powers and we've established that every week they're so powerful that only Supergirl can stop them. So yes. ergo you couldn't have the green arrow guys get into fist fights right. with it seem to hold out very well, you know. So, you know, it's just it was just a really cool like I feel like introduction for her. Um, it, it seems like she's the most popular show and they make sure she's front and center in a lot of the proceedings, which fine for me. I mean, you know, it's she a great is integration. Actually, yeah. It's a great yeah. integration. Well, of each, each show goes weird. Cause you get the flash episode where it takes the, the meta humans and, uh, the aliens control their minds, so one super team has to fight against the other. Right. And then the Arrow show where all of them are subjugated into a mind wipe by the aliens to try to seek up a secret weapon for themselves. And then the third issue, or the third show, I should right. say, see I'm calling it issues, where they tie it all up with the big shebang battle between the legends of DC Tomorrow and the aliens, you know. And it works on its own level just fine, you know. Right. I mean, you got three episodes and or four episodes and they all work. I'd say three with the Supergirl tacked on to the front. Um, but it, it was fun and dopey. And I don't know. I, I tell you, there's one thing that's noticed is the creepy amount of sex that's working its way onto the CW shows, particularly Supergirl. Um, last week with Monel, like 
half naked with the intern chick in the copy room. And then this episode with her sister, Alex, who comes out. And it's really a funny scene because her and Maggie Sawyer is a cop on the, I'll call it the Metropolis Police Force. They share a moment and they start kissing, right? And they kiss for, I don't know, 30 seconds more. And then they break off and they, they take a breath and they're heaving. Uh, uh, and all of a sudden, then they go back at it again, you know, which is really weird. I mean, I'm like, I thought I was watching Supergirl, you know, and I'm not a conservative individual by any means of the word. But I'm like, this is so odd, you know, that they'd have two lesbian chicks swap and spit <laughs> on Supergirl for what had to be at least three minutes, right? So I'm like, okay, I'm on board. This is okay, but it's just odd. You know what I mean? Well, and, and am I wrong? Or are we? Was it the White Canary on Legends of DC tomorrow who is always emphasizing the fact that she's a lesbian and after looking uh, chicks? And I'm like, who's the producers of this show and what's going on here? Or is the CW got some kind of greater message that I'm supposed to be getting? I don't know. But anyway, that's that's just kind of weird. It's probably just me, but that's kind of where I'm at with. Stuff, you know, okay. Am I missing something here? I don't know. I don't know. I'm hoping that Jimmy and Wynn can just be gay at this point on Supergirl. I'm thinking so too. Yeah, because Jimmy needs to be gay. He really does. He's a very handsome black man and he stands out in the cast too much Mm. to be anything but odd. I mean, he's like a six foot tall black guy and everybody else is like white and five, six, you know, so he stands out and. I'm glad he's the guardian now. That's cool. That's good. That gives him something, him and Wynn, something to do, uh-huh. you know. But just the weird sexual overtones of this show, it's just so weird, you know. I just wonder if I'm being force-fed a message or not. <laughs> hey, but as long as it's dopey and fun, I don't care. You know, that's the fun thing. All right. So next, uh, you didn't see Doctor – you saw Doctor Strange. I saw Doctor Strange. Yes, I, I did. Saw it was a lot of fun. Strange. A lot of fun. Yeah. I didn't think it was deep, but it was a lot of fun, and uh, the plot was handled well. You know, if for the first time, I think that Marvel's two little season at the end actually hurt the film. Okay? Uh, first of all, they should have been reversed, because the Thor and Doctor Strange one was very diverting. Mm-hmm. Okay. And that should have been at the tail, tail end. And then they had another one that was the tail end that should have been up front, but which I also disagreed with because of the motivations of Mordo. Because in the film, he's shown splitting up with the gang because he disagrees with the method of magic that the ancient one is using, okay? He says, listen, I was brought in here under false pretenses. I don't agree with your use of what you're doing. That's why I'm going on my own. I like that. I thought that was an even better reason for him to become an antagonist in Doctor Strange. But then they go and turn him into a two-dimensional guy at the end when he plays that deal on the minor sorcerer who's only using magic to fix his legs and play pickup basketball. So they really turn Mordo into an asshole. And I'm like, he's he's a good antagonist, and uh-huh. I agree with the reasons he, did, he split up. But I just said, you know, it's kind of force-feeding me, like, his villainy. Mm-hmm. And it didn't seem, like, straight, because he seems like a virtuous fellow in the film. He really does, you know? I, I'd get mad if I got passed over motion to the Sorcerer Supreme like like he was. But at the same time, I was like, mm, you know, he, he's a dick, you know? And he shouldn't, he, he, you know, I, just like, uh, 
But I did like Doctor Strange. I thought that was a pretty good film and very successful for Marvel. I'd probably put it somewhere between Ant-Man and Iron Man, you know what I mean? Because they're pretty good. Even though it's the same story as Iron Man, it was a lot of fun. And uh, Cumberbunch is perfect as Doctor Strange. He's a spitting image and works just fine. The cape, oh my God. The cape almost stole the show as a minor actor. What else has been going on? Um, Luke Cage, I heard that Netflix got its best ratings ever. Second season. Cage. They're going to do a yeah. second season, so that's they, good. They, yeah, they seem to be building momentum with their Marvel yep. shows, and they're just – I swear to God, I was watching the show the other day, and I was like – my wife's like, oh, wow, that guy's kind of hot. And I'm like, oh, you mean like Mike Coulter? And she goes, well, yeah, is that the guy there? I go, yeah. And I go, yeah, if I get reincarnated, I want to come back as Mike Coulter. <laughs> You know, and it's not a gay thing. I just think that he's doing really well. <laughs> he's hot, man. I mean, in Luke Cage, man, he does really well with the ladies, you know. And I'm like, damn, man, I'm going to be Mike Coulter. Mike Coulter for president, for Christ's sakes, you know. So anyway, yeah, that's really exciting because, I mean, I thought what they would do is they would do a combined Luke Cage season two with Iron Fist season two and do uh, Heroes for Hire. Yes. But – my concern with that was is we wouldn't get Alfrey Woodard shades. We wouldn't get um, we wouldn't get Misty Knight in the same way. Right. So right. I'm it, I'm it, happy. It I'm happy to see this cast get a second season. Yes. Uh, and Rosario Dawson. Who'd have thought she'd ever like develop a character to the point like that it was done? You know what I mean? I mean, I never would have been as sympathetic to her. As I am during Cage, she was introduced with great fanfare to Daredevil, but she really ups the ante in the Luke Cage series quite successful, you know. And uh, I don't know. There's just uh, too much good stuff, man. You can't keep up with these days. Finally, the Spider-Man Homecoming trailer. Okay. Yeah. Lots of fun. You know, I don't understand that uh, a Disney trailer of all of, what, two and a half minutes or whatever the hell that thing is, is better than all of the Sony Spider-Man movies combined into one ball. Because <laughs> you know? I'm watching this, and I'm, like, really fucking enthusiastic I about know. Spider-Man, you know? And he's got, like, a nerd boy friend who's, like, a fat Asian guy or whatever, and I'm like, this is great, this is real life. And yet, I'm like, God, this, is, this has so much more promise than, than all of the other shit we've seen from Sony. And it's like... How could Sony miss the boat so badly on Peter Parker, whereas Disney just because maybe it's because they work with Marvel guys? I don't know. Because you know? Marvel, and I said this about Ant Man. Um, Ant Man is a it's a Disney movie for twelve year old boys, right? It's a Disney yes. movie first. It's not a Marvel yeah. movie. It's a Disney movie. Right. Um, what Spider Man is is it's going to be a Disney movie. With teens, but for the theater with the Marvel guys doing it. And so you're going to have really awesome spider action because Sony's going to want that because Sony's very big on action set pieces like that. So, I mean, it's this weird, perfect amalgam of like a Spider-Man movie and we're finally getting it. And it's just Sony couldn't do it because... You know, I don't know why. What, because what, they, they, they weren't willing to do, cast a teenager as Peter Parker. Well, you know, that, that's the thing. When you see him, it's like, I'm going to guess he's about 15 here. 
He's right, and the actor's like 18, 20. Yeah, well, you know, they always have older people portraying young So they just got to – yeah. It's they got it right. He's perfect. in high school. It looks he's, like it's a he's high, high school, school movie. Like Right. When, yeah. when you see him in the cafeteria at school with his geek Asian friend and they're eyeballing this girl. It's Liz Allen, who's black, which I can imagine we're going to hear a lot about. Is that who that was? Uh-huh. I'm like – it's got to be somebody from the Spider-Man it's mythos, like, but I, it's, it's not Gwen and it's not Mary no. Jane. It's Liz. But I never would have guessed it was Liz Allen. That's the love interest, the first one, dude. It is. It's the very it first is? one. Yeah. yeah. And that's great because it's, it shows two 15-year-old boys totally mystified by a member of the opposite sex uh-huh. just because she walks across the cafeteria in front of them. And she knows that their eyes are on her. And yet she knows the power she has over two helpless males. And it is just hilarious, man. 30 seconds of sheer fun. Uh-huh. Who's directing this? Anybody you know? No, guy who did Cop Car. Oh, wonderful. Yeah, I, what well, is it about it doesn't, it doesn't matter. It doesn't. That's what you've got to learn about the Marvel movies. They're so produced in studio, it doesn't matter who directs them. The, the discipline they have to sticking to as much to the original formula as possible mm-hmm. is quite refreshing. Yes, and I have to handle. I have to hand it to the Marvel Studios for subjugating their directors to sticking to the story. Because when you think about the charm and charisma of the characters, they don't need to be interrupted by uh, artistic choices by a director like the DC movies are, okay? Marvel makes you tell the story of Marvel. DC says, oh, we're going to let you do a Frank Miller or an Alan Moore on our characters and see if we like it. And it sucks, okay? I mean, it it, it just shows you the differences about discipline versus letting these guys have artistic license at Warner Brothers. You know what I mean? Don't let them have artistic license. Make them stick to the tenets of the character, what makes the character what it is, what makes them popular, and what makes them likable. Because I don't like any of DC's movies at all, whereas I can't wait to see Marvel movies. And that's a big difference. I saw the three-hour version of Batman versus Superman. I won't get those three hours back. Whereas until Netflix... DC was ruling on TV for just those reasons. Yes, they were. That's true. Just those reasons. Because uh, yeah. they, the T, you know, it's kind of funny that the Warner Brother TV studios and the Warner Brother movies are like, they're diametrically opposed to one another, mm-hmm. determined to be as opposite as possible. And it's really killing the movies. And I'm just like, I don't get it, you know? Uh, and, and the Netflix stuff is still, you know, and, and the Luke Cage is different because the other three seasons, the two of Daredevil and the one of Jessica Jones, stick to the premise, okay? The Jessica Jones follows the Bendis plot pretty close, and the Daredevil series are just something straight out of Frank Miller Daredevil. Right. And the Luke Cage is interesting because Luke Cage never was in Harlem that I remember, okay? Times Square was where his office was. Right. I was the only... And now he's got this quest to to save Harlem because he can. Because this barber, he, who was his mentor, told him that he could be something better. And I'm like, 
Well, these have nothing to do with the comic book other than the basic origin. They right. stuck to the basic origin, but after that, they just used Luke Cage as a vehicle for something else. And that was uh, their first um, success with deviating from the story, I think. Right. You know? Good point. Yeah. Well, anyway, we hope you've enjoyed, like Andrew and I babbling about uh, comic books and movies. I mean, uh, yeah. this is our blood, man. I'm telling you. <laughs> Our wives, you know, they, they have no sympathy for us whatsoever, so we're Not, counting on you to have yes. sympathy for us. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't think my wife knew it was going to be a two-hour and ten-minute episode. Is it 210 today? I'm yeah. sorry, kids. We just, we tried to hurry it up, too. We did. We? we did. It's just been, yeah. Well, there you go. You get one podcast every five weeks, it ought to be a couple hours. That's true. Yeah, split it up into three segments and, yeah. and, and do it while you're taking a dump or doing the laundry. One of the two. I don't know. One of the two. <clears throat> For your 45-minute shits. Actually, just call the doctor, all right? <laughs> if you're on the toilet for 45 minutes, call the doctor. Don't listen to Either us. Either that or you read too much. Yeah. Don't your feet fall asleep? Anyway, so anyway. That's, uh, that's it for 2016. Or We'll be back uh, 2017 with the best of. Yep. Uh, in January sometime uh, in between. Probably then. late January, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mid to late, yeah. Mid to late. Um, it takes a while to figure out what the best of 2016 is before we can actually have a podcast. Yeah, it's not as exciting as it was last year, unfortunately. No, it really isn't. The the big two have gotten jack out of me, and so we're going to be minding the indies. Well, you know, I mean, how much of our show, like we had Jessica Jones on, but none of our show features the mainstream publishers whatsoever. No, and, I'm going to uh, read Hawkeye next week. You know, I'm a lover of Kate. I'm glad she's I know. The I got to read it. We'll it's Kate. Yeah, we'll yeah. see what happens. Isn't that weird that we have to read Hawkeye just because of Kate? You know, but she's a better Hawkeye than Clint. Oh, so out. much better. Oh. I know. I yeah. know. Not even close, I tell you. Yeah. You know, Marvel's got an overship program right now. Apparently their books are selling so shitty that they're blaming it on the retailers now for not ordering enough copies. So they're sending us extra copies. Wow. Because they believe that we under – well, here's the deal. They doubled my issue of Hawkeye number one. Okay. Even though that was the highest ordered product I had. From Marvel in December, they still doubled the fucking order. And I'm like, really? Really? Okay, you give me a couple copies of this, a couple copies of that, but then you fucking double my Hawkeye order? I mean, what's with that? You know, I don't I don't even know who's running Marvel anymore. You know what I mean? You think they'd get smart to say, oh, we'll give you a couple copies of Hawkeye because that's going to be the bestseller out of all this bullshit we're putting out here, but... Well, you know, and the sad thing was, oh, here's a good story, and I'll let it go at that. Great Lakes Adventures, they rebooted it. They brought it back. I got one sale out of Great Lakes Avengers number one. So immediately I canceled it, and, and the remaining copies I had went in the 99-cent bins. I swear to God, three weeks after the fucking thing comes out. So I canceled my orders for two, minus that one copy for whoever showed up for it. Uh-huh. And... Marvel sends me a half a dozen copies of two because they don't believe I've ordered enough. And I'm like, so somebody says, well, do you have any ones? And I go, yeah, but you got to dig in the 99. It's the weirdest thing I've been through, you know. They're yeah, trying you to turn you into a Marvel too. shop no matter what, Vernon. You know, I, 
I'm not prejudiced. I'll sell anything to anybody, okay? I don't care. I care that their experience with comics is good. That's my criticism. Uh, other than that, they can read whatever they want. But that's my story for the day on Marvel Overships. Anyway. All right. All right, kids. We love you all. Read good comics. There's not enough time and money to read shitty ones, so you might as well read the good ones. That's, that's the way it should that's be. That's the way it should be. All right. And, hope, and hopefully guys like me won't be out of business next year when we don't sell enough Marvel in D.C. <laughs> huh. Telling you. But good luck. On that happy note, uh, yeah. you know, happy holidays. Yeah, we love you all. Merry Christmas and happy holidays to you that don't celebrate Christmas. <laughs>